Hello, and welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. I'm Catherine Wright. And I'm David Bryan. Happy New Year! It's 2021. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year. It's not, it's... It is not 2020. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I never will be I th- again. I thought it would never end. <laughs> I really did. Um, it is a slightly weird feeling. I've... I've... Uh, a housemate of mine said, saying, saying yesterday or whatever it was, I was saying, saying about next uh, next year, and I was like, "You mean this year?" Yeah, yeah, right. And, and she's like, "Oh my goodness, it's not, it's not twenty twenty anymore." And I'm like, "No, no, it isn't. It's over." And she genuinely yeah. sort of started, sort of like, she couldn't believe it. You know, just look on her face. She's like, "Oh, oh wow." Yeah, on New Year's Eve, one of my housemates baked a cake. And then we were like, should we cut the cake now? It's like, no, we'll cut it later. I said, what, you mean next year? <laughs> As in, like, in about an hour. Yeah. No, it's a, it, 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 it a weird feeling. It's definitely not not been my favourite year. No, no, it's not it. the best. I mean, you know, good things have happened That's very here true. and there. But overall, I think... Subpar. Glad to see the back of it. Subpar. <laughs> Try again. <coughs> There's a sort of intrusion of the real in it. That's what happened this year. Yeah. yeah. We thought for this episode we would do a little bit of a retrospective. I'm sure you're all probably as tired of 2020 as we are, but mm. I'm afraid it can be cathartic at times to sort of go back over the horrors you've just been through and sort of wave goodbye to them. So we thought we would do something of a 2020 retrospective. First of all, though... On ...and redeem it. With the benefit of high <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I don't know about that. First of, first of all, though, well, bef- before we do the, the 2020 retrospective, I think it is important to talk about uh, the upcoming runoff elections for the Senate in Georgia. But before that even... David, did you know that King Starman was going to resign? It, what? <laughs> did you see that one? I have not seen... <laughs> <laughs> there was a rumour going round... There was a rumour going around the internet yesterday that Keir Starmer was about to resign. What? Um, I have so many questions. Well, I came I came down to dinner. Um, just to ruin uh, your house. No, well, <laughs> I came down to dinner and my housemate said to me, have you seen about Keir Starmer? And I was like, no, thinking that, oh, you know, he got COVID or something, you know, or you know something had happened. And I was like, no, no, what happened? Um, she was like, he's going to resign. And I said, no, you never. I don't believe you. She was like, no, seriously. Apparently a bunch of, uh, bunch of MPs have been sort of saying things that sort of sound like they're going to be leadership bids and it's, it's all going to come out tomorrow. And I was like, I was blown away. I was just gobsmacked. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a 2020, that's a 2021 surprise, isn't it? You know, start the year off. (coughs) Anyway, I, 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 I went, you know, we ate our dinner, and and actually I watched a film with with my partner in the evening. I didn't. It sort of fell out of my mind, to be honest. Got onto other things, and then this morning I suddenly remember, oh my goodness, Keir Starmer's about to resign. So I opened up the news, and I couldn't see a thing about it anywhere. Um, and uh, and so I opened up, I went up Google Chrome, as you do, mm. tippity tappity type in Keir Starmer resign. And I got an article from, I believe, joe.co.uk, that most uh, reputable of news websites, <laughs> saying that apparently 
uh, it wasn't true. There was a it, it's it was a rumor that had been going around. It started from a a um, a Twitter account called Babble, apparently. Uh, sort of started this rumor that Keir Starmer was about to resign, mm. and uh, it just gone around the internet like wildfire. Right. And, uh, people were sort of t- uh, tagging things on Twitter with Starmer quit and all this kind of thing. There wasn't and, like uh, some outrider who's trying to brief this to the press. It was just a no. It seems to have just been an internet rumor. It. Yeah, it seems to be the case. David Lammy tweeted, "You know, this is a load of rubbish." You know, right. Balderdash, I think he called it, <laughs> channeling the spirit of Jacob rees Um which interesting for David Lammy. Uh, yeah. You know, who are we to judge? But um, yeah, so that turned out not to be true. So I was hoping that we were going to have a really interesting podcast. We talk about Keir Starmer resigning and why, and you know, what we thought about his you know leadership of the last sort of two hundred odd days, and you know, and instead, no, it's just a rumor. But I wanted to bring it up anyway because uh, it, it was in my head. So there you go. Just so if, if anyone, like. <laughs> yeah. The, the problem Dream. from a left-wing perspective from for the last leadership campaign was that basically there was no there was no plan of who who would stand as the left candidate. So the start no. of the campaign was already like off and going and had been going for a week and they'd you know he'd already had the video of him with the Yorkshire miner and and whatever. Whilst the left was still mm. in public trying to work out who its candidate was going to be. This time we'd be in the same position. We? No, no one knows who would be the. If there was an unexpected leadership election, who would we stand? We would have to go through a whole process. That's true, but I think the sort of the right of the party would be in a similar position this time around. I don't know who they would who they would run. Hmm. You know, because obviously last time there was a sort of there was the sort of abortive Jess Phillips campaign, but that didn't really go anywhere. And then they all kind of fell in behind Starmer after that flopped because they were like, well, you know, we can push him to the right maybe, <clears throat> and seem to have succeeded in so doing. Yes, <laughs> I don't know who they'd run this time around be interesting anyway it didn't happen so it's not relevant but i don't know i wanted to bring it up anyway yeah. so my instinct yeah. to try to find some meaning in it the only thing i can come up with is that the fact that the rumor got so far means that there are quite a lot of people who who, who were wait who, who really want yes. to believe it right <laughs> i think that is the yeah that's definitely the sort of the takeaway for real politics not real politique but real politics mm. it's complicated that one <laughs> um but yeah the, the takeaway is definitely that the rumor was obviously taken up by a lot of people who who wanted to um you know would, would quite like to see starmer uh starmer leave and even now that it's been sort of very thoroughly sort of debunked there are still plenty of people on sort of left twitter that are still using the hashtag starmer quit so it's, mm. it's given them a, a new a new hashtag i suppose i'm not a big one for hashtags no, no, I mean, myself no. No, but uh, there we go. It's one of the I find the left Twitter or... the left is that it, it it gives the impression of it being very easy to engage with political activism, um, but in ways that really really don't achieve anything. Yeah, I find I find left Twitter a bit off-putting. Um, a lot of people do, <laughs> me included. Yeah, I, mean, I I I do have a Twitter account and I do follow. You know, I follow both sort of politicians, I follow people like Jeremy Corbyn and Nadia Whittam and people like that on the sort of left of the Labour Party and in the Labour movement more broadly. And I follow sort of journalists and academics as well, but then I also do follow just sort of a few, you know, not loads, but a, 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 a decent chunk of sort of sort of regular sort of activists, you know, rank and file Labour Party members and people who have recently left the Labour Party, people like that. Um, I and I, it's, it, it's, it's not that I... Like, hearing what people have to say because it's yeah, definitely. Broadcast. 
but it's not good for and, and, having any kind of actual distance. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, they can be very warm and friendly, but they could, you know, there's, there's a good deal of, I think there is a good deal of solidarity. Um, you know, if, if, if you know, you, you, you'll, you'll see someone posting about, you know, having, having had a bad sort of mental health week or whatever, and a lot of sort of comrades will sort of rally around them. And, and I think it is, I think there is genuinely a sort of a mutual, a kind of, a kind of sort of, maybe a psychological mutual na- mutual aid element of it, um, which I think is valuable, building those kind of networks when we are, especially at the moment when we are so isolated from one another in sort of physical space. But, yeah, in terms of the discourse, it's pretty low quality, and I, I very often see people that otherwise respect saying things that are just completely unsubstantiated and, and, and unsubstantiatable, you know, mm. um, and you just do think... <laughs> It's a little disappointing. I think Twitter's just maybe not the place for it. I don't know. I don't know if there's a social media platform that could exist that would be better. I don't think... I think Tumblr had similar problems, but in a different direction. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's a... The important thing to remember is that these are private corporations who have an interest in making money, (laughs) not in facilitating meaningful discourse. And they will, to an extent, if it helps, then make money. And they will encourage other forms of conversation if they didn't. So unhelpful but long-running feuds create a lot more engagement than conclusive <clears throat> or cathartic discussion. So they get pushed up the, the timeline. Yeah. I mean, I would absolutely recommend to anyone who, who uses Twitter or any other social media to always have your, your dashboard on most recent and not rely on the algorithm because the algorithms are bad and you mm. should hate them. Yeah, I mean, I will occasionally flip over to the sort of top tweets to see if there's anything big that I missed, but I always, I always have my default view as as most recent because I, I just I don't I don't trust the algorithm to actually sort of deliver me my content. Mm. I think it plays into I get making a serious point about it now. This is supposed to be just a mm. but anyway, um, I I think that in the culture of late capitalism, we've internalised certain things that the left should be trying not to internalise like for example uh, a sort of HR culture in the way that we relate to each other. Does that, does that mm. make sense? And, uh, I or, think it kind of it does, is, um, yeah. The failure to abolish the police mm. Yeah, definitely. Because like, especially Twitter plays into that because it makes everything like a sort of press release from the per- corporation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. The, um, like organizing Richard Seymour. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Richard Seymour put out a book a couple of years ago called The Twittering Machine, which is very much about this kind of thing. You know, and he was someone who had sort of, in the, in the sort of earlier days of left Twitter, had become very, very active on Twitter to the point where he actually felt that he was becoming addicted to it and, and the sort of back and forth. And as you say, the kind of very, very sort of feud style discourse that takes place on there. And this he wrote a book about his sort of experience of pulling back from that and, and, and the, the way that these things sort of feed on our on our you know dopamine and mm. and and endorphin receptors in our brain they, they exist to sort of tap into that sort of part of our endocrine system and, 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 and push our buttons in these very interesting ways um, but they are sometimes I think yeah very very deleterious to our health uh, both psychologically and to the health of our sort of public discourse yes I, I think it plays into the, the the sort of um, the specific pathologies of a movement which doesn't have very much power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
But, yeah. you know, I don't think that's insurmountable. I think that's just something we have to be aware of. Yeah, and it's, I do also think that it's probably better on the whole than not having it at all. Because it does allow certain kinds of organising and getting together and stuff. I absolutely agree. And I, I also think there is value. And there's something that uh, Corey Muller of uh, Existential Comics Famous said. There is value in, you know, for want of a better word, the the sort of the, the bad guys, the other side, having Twitter accounts, particularly sort of these sort of big, you know, people like Elon Musk or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, you get these things that they say on Twitter that are completely ludicrous. But they expose something of the way they think. And I think they give away more than they realise they do. Totally. Um, and there, there was an episode of the Political Philosophy Podcast a, a long while ago now where, where Corey Muller was talking to Toby Buckle, the host, and he was saying that he, he thinks everybody, you know, it should be mandatory if you're a CEO of a corporate... Because Jeff Bezos, for example, is not on, not on Twitter, mm. doesn't use it. Um, and, he, and he was saying, no, it should be mandatory. You have to have it. You have to use it. Because I, I want to know what he's thinking. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there is some value in that, knowing what what they're thinking, the way... the you know, because a lot of people... I mean, Donald Trump is a sort of prime example, right? His Twitter feed was essentially his sort of id, just sort of laid bare to mm. the world. And and we spent the last, you know, five, six years sort of being fed up to the back teeth of it, as well we might, but at the same time, it did expose who he was, how he thought, undercut, I think, some of the mystique of power. It was very difficult yeah, to think totally. of him in that way, and I think that's... I think that's valuable in and of itself. Yeah. Yes. It's sort of, it's very different to the, and be therefore better than, um, the. if you watch like TV interviews of politicians from the 50s, they are just wild from our perspective. It's like, hello, minister. Thank you for coming on. Now, please talk for as long as you like about whatever you like without interruption. <laughs> thank you very much for coming <laughs> on. Goodbye. Is the government right about everything? Anything? Because it is a good government, etc. Yeah. And, and they still did. Sort of, some people bemoan the era where politicians were respected, um, mm. and then I, I think it's quite good that they're not respected anymore. I think people read it as the mo so it's something that you hear quite often. People saying, "Why is it that in the modern era, politicians seem to be of a much lower caliber than previous politicians?" I think part mm. of it is at least this: is that previously they were of this petty, low human caliber and weren't these kind of heroic patrician figures. It's just that because we had the distance from them back then, that we were able to imagine them as more sort of um, tranquil and statesmanlike than they really yeah, were. Yeah, no, I, I, I quite agree with you. I mean, it's the difference between sort of the Queen and Prince Charles, isn't it? Hmm. The Queen doesn't engage with the media except on sort of very specific occasions and through very regulated channels. So we, we perceive her as this very sort of above-it-all um, kind of, you know, statesperson-like figure. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Charles has proven more willing to speak his mind. And he obviously sent those letters that got... Uh, released under the Freedom of Information yeah. Act yeah. that, you know, was showing him interfering actively in politics, um, which is, you know, banned from a constitutional perspective, but it does show you something of the way he thinks, whereas I don't think I think I think most people don't really have much of an idea of the way the Queen thinks. Yeah, yeah. And totally. what she and, and, and that is a bit of a problem when you consider how much influence she still has in our in our politics. She doesn't have much sort of hard power, but she has a lot of influence. Oh, and the Prime Minister Prime Minister has to have a sit down for an hour with her every week and explain explain themselves to her, you know, come what may, you know, that and, you know, that has to be intimidating, right? You know, if you've had a really bad week where you've really fucked up, you have to you have to, to get in a car, or it's probably over Zoom at the moment, but you have to get in a car, up, drive up the mall to Buckingham Palace, you know, knock on the door. The butler says, oh, please wait here. <laughs> Stand there knocking your knees together in the corridor until the Queen will see you. Yeah. In you walk, and you have to explain to, you know, 
this woman who is the scion of a dynasty mm. that stretches back to, you know, the sixth century, um, or you know more if you believe certain. There's, there's a bit of dispute as to whether the line of the kings of Wessex was unbroken, but possibly <laughs> even all the way to the. It's my historian's hat. Sorry, possibly even all the way back to the god, uh, the god, the Woden. Woden if you yes. believe the uh, the original claims of the the house of Wessex, you know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you have to sit down and explain to this woman why it is that Dominic Cummings broke his own coronavirus <laughs> regulations by driving to Barnard Castle to get an eye test, uh, allegedly to test his eyes with his wife and child in the back of the car. She's in That's got to be. In a slippers and dressing gown with a makeup a mess, with a fag on or a glass of wine. <laughs> He's going, listen, you. What have you done yeah. with my country this week? <laughs> you little upstart. But that's got to be. That's got to be intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think insofar as the insofar as introduced to the monarchy does have some social utility as that, right? It's scaring the bejesus out yeah. of Prime Minister once a week. <laughs> that, that, um, that does work know, a lot better if she's been queen since 1952. Yes. Yeah. I don't think Charles could pull that off quite as well. No. But. At least not for the first two or three prime ministers. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, there you go. That got quite that got quite serious. We got some good discussion out mm. of that frivolous, silly story. I forgot what it was. I like her. <laughs> it was Keir Starmer not oh, yeah. actually resigning. Yeah. Very literal non-story. Yeah, wasn't yeah, bad. wasn't bad. Should we turn then to an actual story? Yes. Uh, the opposite of a non-story, possibly Rather than a one past of the most story which didn't happen. A future story yes. which might happen. Well, which yes. will happen, but so, I don't know. Let's just get on with it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, we're recording this for our listeners' benefit. Uh, we're recording this. It's, it's currently just gone quarter past four in the afternoon. On Sunday, the third of January, twenty twenty-one. Year of our um, Lord, twenty twenty-one. <laughs> uh, your Lord, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I gave up on on, on, on that one. Um, uh, we'll have it. We'll have an episode about about my relationship with religion in a future day. Uh, it's probably best not to go into it now. Um, it's, it's something or of a maybe discussion. Even, <laughs> maybe even at all. To be honest, um, yes. <sighs> I've quite lost my thread. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that bit in um, Monty Python: The Life of Brian, where they're they're one of them's trying to starting a debate motion in the People's Front of Judea or whichever group they are, and they have to keep going back and saying every time he says it is the right of any man or woman, and they have to keep amending it, whatever. And by the end, he's like, I forgot the point I was going to make. Mm. Of course, it'd be even more difficult now. What with all us transgenders, transgender yes. and everything. Well, actually, that little bit as a little bit, it, it touches on that in a way that's not great. Well, no, of course not. What's his name? Um, Cleese is a big, you know. Yes. Cleese is. I mean, actually, the whole, the whole group of the the, the um, anti-Roman sect that they're in is actually quite accepting of of one of the people who sort of effectively comes out of trans in the middle of the meeting, except yeah. John Cleese's character, who's just not having yeah, any of it. Which is just accurate. Yeah. I, mean, I think Eric Hoda, Eric Hoda said some some slightly unsavory things as well lately. Michael Palin though seems to be a nice bloke. Yeah. So big up Michael Palin. The only one of the Pythons who hasn't stepped in hot water. Oh, Gilliam as well. Gilliam was going mm. off the other week. They, they, they should just agree that, oh, that well, the conclusion they come to is something along the lines of she may not be able to have children, but she does have the right. See to have that is is very sort of very sort of trans feminist thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, Judith Butler would like that. So, um, yeah, Georgia. So Georgia. for those who don't, for those who don't, know, as I say, we're recording this at. It's now twenty past four on the afternoon of Sunday, the third of January, twenty twenty one. Year of our Lord, twenty twenty. Don't start it all again. 
Oh, I have to leave this bit in. It's good fun. Um, in a couple of days' time, on the fifth of Georgia, uh, of Georgia, of January. Oh, it's all falling apart. There's going to be a runoff election, a double runoff election. So essentially, what happens in Georgia, as you will know if you listen to our previous episode on the American general election, is that um, in special elections, of which which is their equivalent of a by-election, of which one of the elections in Georgia was, uh, you have a jungle primary where everyone runs for every party, and then the top two go through to a runoff election, uh, similar to the way the French presidential elections work. Uh, um, except in, in America, they can be from the same party. If, if the top two are both from yes. the same party, then it's, then it's a runoff between yep. those two. Yep. In the other election in Georgia, um, they have a rule where if the, if the vote is close enough... I, I, Within, within, is it within 2% or something? I, don't, I can't remember exactly, but if the vote is close enough, they essentially rerun the election. Uh, they also have a similar sort of runoff process. And it so happened that both of those things happened uh, simultaneously, so we have this double runoff election due uh, in a couple of days' time in Georgia. Um, the thing is, is that currently the Republicans have 50 seats in the Senate, and the Democrats, together with the sort of left independents who caucus with the Democrats, Bernie Sanders and his friend, because I can never remember the other one's name, yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, have 48 seats. So if... Yes. And with these two being, as it stands, vacant, yes. right? Yeah. So if the Democrats win both of these seats, they'll be in control of the Senate. Because if they have both have 50, then the vice president, Kamala Harris, who is, of course, a Democrat, breaks the tie. Or if he will be uh, vice president in a few days. January the 20th, isn't it? That's the inauguration. Yeah. Um, but if they don't win both of them, then the Republicans will have control of the Senate, which means they'll essentially be able to block any legislation they don't like, with the caveat that there are a few sort of somewhat more centrist Republicans like Mitt Romney who might be willing to side with the Democrats on certain things, but certainly not on anything particularly rad. the other one who they're always thinking about flip? Susan Collins or something. Susan Collins. In, is she still in... Yeah, she's still in. She she did very well, actually, in her last election. Yeah, right. Um, Lisa Mikowski is another one. Uh, there are a few that are sort of occasionally flippable, but 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 even they don't flip very often. No, no. Um, so, yeah, there are two elections in Georgia, as we say. Uh, the first I is between... Also that it's, it's not necessarily just legislation they don't like. It's legislation that they don't like being passed under a Democrat. They will deliberately yeah. part block legislation which would help that is that would have bipartisan yeah. support just to be obstinate <laughs> yeah which is what they did under obama yeah um, g- blocking for example a lot of the um economic sort of support legislation that came in in the aftermath of the financial crash that obama tried to pass which of course is very relevant for our current situation because we're in the middle of another economic crisis um and we've already had uh, just the other day the republicans uh, blocking um an increase in the stimulus checks that are being put out from $600 to $2,000, which actually Donald Trump was in favour of, uh, but the other Republicans didn't like, and so many of them, most of them, uh, voted against it. So anyway, so the the two elections, uh, the first of which is um, between uh, incumbent senator, Republican senator David Perdue, uh, running for re-election against uh, Democratic challenger John Ossoff. Um, and the other is Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler uh, running against Democratic challenger Raphael Warnock. Now, 
both of these races are kind of interesting. So Ossoff ran before, if you remember. It was not only in November, November Just Gone, but he also ran. Uh, did he run for governor or something? Or was it for a different Senate seat? Either way, he yeah, ran for remember. something. He ran for something in Georgia uh, a couple of years ago and got a lot of media attention, a lot of money. Uh, I think he may have been for governor. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, Raphael Warnock is um, the pastor of the church where Martin Luther King, both senior and junior, were previously pastor. So obviously he has quite a lot of cachet in the black community in Georgia. He is himself black. Um, but also, you know, that's that's obviously also a big catch, you know, more widely among Democrats, you know, being mm. able to say I'm the sort of spiritual successor to Martin Luther King is a big, you know, it's big. Um, <laughs> might put Republicans off. Sorry? Might put Republicans it off. It might well put Republicans <laughs> off. Um, well, this is interesting, isn't it? It might put Republicans off who know anything about Martin Luther yeah, King. Yeah, totally. But if all you knew about Martin Luther King was the stuff that gets sort of put out by the sort of state propaganda machine, you probably wouldn't. Sanitized um, version of it. Yeah, the sort of... Oh, Martin Luther King, he basically just didn't really like it when you were, you know, said the N-word to his face, and other than that, he was kind of chill. Hmm. Um, as opposed After to the actual Martin Luther King... March to Washington, suddenly everyone was like, oh, black people are human also. Maybe yeah. they should have rights. And that's how yeah. the Civil Rights Act... And that's how racism ended. Yeah, yeah, that's how racism ended. Yeah. That's, that's a better formula. As opposed to the real Martin Luther King, who is, of course, a radical socialist, anti-war abolitionist, mm -hmm. um, and also, it must be said... Uh, Misogynistic, womanizing prick. Yeah. But um, <laughs> also the, the, but um nobody's the perfect. was the march for jobs and peace. Mm. It's, not, it's notable Absolutely. that the jobs bit is just no one. Even the peace bit gets a light. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, I think even these days people even forget that the Martin Luther King and much of the civil rights movement overlapped with the anti-war movement as well as well as the workers' movement. You know, it was all of a piece in the sixties. Um, someday we'll have to do a podcast just talking about radical sixties. I love mm. the sixties. But anyway, yeah, so you've got this very interesting... So what happened during the November election, uh, Kelly Leffler, um, who's facing Warnock, um, she ran very far to the right. Um, she basically was competing with the other Republicans in the sort of jungle primary uh, that she was a part of to be the most Trumpian. Um, and, so, and, and so she ran very far to the right and said some rather unsavory things. Uh, meanwhile, David Perdue, who is the sort of incumbent senator for the other seat who's running against Ossoff, is a, is a little less openly sort of far right. He's still pretty conservative, don't get me wrong. He's certainly no moderate. Um, but there's this interesting uh, dynamic with Leffler, where she's this sort of openly embraced Trumpianism, the kind of the rhetoric, the racism, um, all of this kind of thing. Uh, and she's against Raphael Warnock, who has in the past, said some extremely radical things the other way, you know, which he has been at sort of at pain to kind of tone down in his campaign. The Republicans have run lots of attack ads with sort of excerpts from sermons he gave 20 years ago where he sounds very radical, very very Martin Luther King-esque. Um, and he is now trying to tamp that down. He ran a he ran an advert where he just goes for a walk with his dog and all this kind of thing, because there's this sort of uh, stereotype in America where black people don't own dogs. Right, that, yeah. That's a thing. Apparently, <laughs> mad, but that's a thing. Uh, so he goes for he goes for a walk with his dog, and, and you know he's a very nice dog, and, and gives him a little little pets behind the ears, and you know to try and make himself seem non-threatening. Whereas the Republicans are running attack ads, sort of making him sound like he's some kind of radical, radical socialist. I know I I I actually 
I think we should take him on his face that he isn't anymore as radical as he was 20 years ago. I think we would be foolish as leftists to sort of assume that he's uh, lying about that. I think it's probably fair to say that he probably has become more moderate uh, over the last 20 years, uh, even if he is trying to sort of emphasize that for political reasons. Yeah, um, the, the, the idea that any anyone from the centre or centre left party is secretly more uh, secretly on our side, but they're just pretending not to. Yeah. Not a, that, that, that's a myth that we shouldn't adopt on the, on the yes. left because it leaves us very open to getting swindled. Yeah. yeah. Ostroff is also interesting because he 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 he's white, but he is Jewish, which is inter- an interesting dynamic. There aren't very many Jewish politicians in the South. Um, yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, um, and he also he he worked for a couple of black congressmen. Uh, when he was younger, including John Lewis, a sort of very famous civil rights activist uh, who recently died. So he also has sort of this sort of bona fides, bona f- I don't know how to pronounce that, bona, f- bona fides, mm-hmm. that word. I don't word. really know what language it's from, so um, I don't know what, what pronunciation it's was. It's from Latin. Like. It's from Latin. Latin's usually pretty yeah, fantastic. Yeah, anyway. Um, but yeah, so he has some bona fides with the sort of black community in Atlanta and in Georgia more broadly as well through his sort of connections to John Lewis and that there is a tradition in the sort of particularly in the south I think of quite a lot of cross community solidarity between the Jewish community and the black community in the face of a sort of white Christian um, hegemony as you might expect mm-hmm. so that's quite an interesting dynamic as well um, so it's going to be an interesting race I think an interesting interesting couple of races uh, from a, a number of different angles um, yeah so at the moment um, Ossoff is up 1.2 points over Purdue and Warnock is up 1.8 points over Leffler, which are both well within the margin of error. Um, and so we, may, we can maybe say that the Democrats have a slight edge, but honestly, really, we should probably consider it a toss-up. Uh, it should be said that early voting that's come in so far has leaned more heavily Democratic than it did in November. In November, the Republicans ended up um, ever so slightly you know, a point or so ahead of the Democrats. Close enough that it went to a runoff, but but it was slightly about a point ahead of the Democrats. Now it's about it, it's about the other way around. So the Democrats are about a point or two ahead, um, yeah. and I the early voting just, seems to bear that out. But psychologically, the Democrats have more to win than the Republicans do to lose. Right? The, the Democrats are voting for let's have an effective presidency over the next four years, and the Republicans are voting for there's going to be a Democrat president and broadly dominated Congress, but will it be completely dominated or slightly less dominated? It's just a less exciting prize that you might win. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So I think there is something quite powerful about the message of vote Republican to, to stop Joe Biden being able to do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, that is always, that is the line they're taking, right? Um, and I think there is something powerful to that. Um, but the thing is though, that that might also galvanize Democrats to, to mm. vote because, you know, they might hear that and go, but I want Joe Biden to be able to, to get stuff done. So, yeah, it is interesting. It's going to be a tight one. Um, and it's, it, at the moment, it's honestly all to play for, you know. And only two days of the election, it will be the election that determines really a lot of the policy agenda for at least the next two years in America. What, what can actually get done uh, legislatively? Obviously, Joe Biden can still do executive actions, but they can always be overturned by a future president. This will this will determine what sort of long-term changes Biden's able to make. And with things like climate change, economic inequality, sort of, that have been, both of which have been exacerbated by the, the effects of which have been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic, hmm. particularly in the sphere of economic inequality, I think 
getting stuff done legislatively is going to be important. And if the Republicans win either of these seats, that's going to be much, much more difficult to do. I wonder if there's any psychological cachet. Um, so there are quite a lot of people who, who would traditionally vote Democrat in a lot of the southern states, but they always overwhelmingly vote Republican for a variety of reasons. But I wonder if you might get an increase in turnout among non-voters who would lean Democrat in Georgia because they've just crossed for the first time in ages the psychological barrier of like, oh, this, this isn't necessarily a red state because it went to the Democrats in mm. general. Kind of, there's no point voting for, the, for a Democrat here. It's Georgia. That's they've crossed the boundary of that's not no longer necessarily mm-hmm, true. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point, definitely. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think measure right because there's so many other effects happening at the same. Yeah, time. because going the other way, you've got the sort of thing of Republicans in the general election who might normally have voted for the Republican candidate, but who were sick of Trump might have lent their vote to Biden. Um, but they, but in, in the general election, you know, the Republicans had the edge over the Democrats in the Senate and certainly in the, in the House elections in Georgia as well. So maybe they sort of don't, they're not willing to lend their vote down ballot because they don't like, they don't dislike. But then Leffler has portrayed herself very Trumpian. And I, I, that might, it might not be a coincidence that Warnock is further ahead of her than Ossoff is ahead of Purdue. I don't know. But again, it's all such narrow margins. It's difficult yeah, to draw yeah. any firm conclusions because it because it's all within the margin of error, and they have them in that many polls because people are a bit polling companies are a bit gun shy after the general election. I think mm-hmm. because the polling in a lot of places there wasn't very good, although it was quite good in Georgia. Um, yeah. the, the the polling in Georgia was was pretty pretty spot on actually. So so maybe that doesn't mean these you know it's it's very hard to say. It's also uh, also these elections expensive. are always on quite are on quite narrow margins, so really small discrepancies between the actual result and the polling end up looking really really dramatic but are often actually mm. not that big like the polls it's, it's a really common thing people say that the polls were really wrong in 2016 but they, they really weren't that wrong right it was only a couple no. of percent off it's just that it was in it's just that in america a tiny change can mean a massive swing in the yeah yeah and it's got to be remembered that that the, you know there's a three three to three point five yeah even sometimes depending on the size of the poll a four point margin of error on any poll so it's only when you take the polls together that you start to get really an idea. But even then, it, it, you still have to beware. You know, there the, the, there is potential for error involved. And compare any you know any any one sort of final final day poll to the final result. You know, if if they're within three or four points of one another, then they got it right fun- functionally because because of how the margin of error works. You, you have to say they basically got that right. It's only mm-hmm. if they're more than that, if they're you know sort of four, five, six points or more. It's also uh, people uh, aren't always correct about how they think they will vote, right? People often say, mm. how, not because they're lying, just because they really think that they're going to vote a certain way, and then they get in the booth, and then they're like, and then they change their mind. Like in Britain, just always the Greens poll at like three percent, yeah, and they usually get like one percent at the actual election, yeah. So most of the people who say month after month after month, I'm going to vote Green, get in there, and, and it's not that they're lying; it's no. that they they want to vote for the Greens, but then when it gets to polling day, they're like. Or if I vote for the Greens, the Tory might get in, or I better vote Labour, you know, and that's a perfectly rational choice, you know. And it's not, it's not as if they're 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 sort of being dishonest about that. They, you know, they're expressing their genuine preference, hmm. but it just so happens that you know they're sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting start to twenty twenty one. 
So it could be it, in a position. Is, yes. where, it could be in a position where we start 2021 with a President Biden who is able to get, with a little finessing, because there was one or two sort of more right-wing Democratic MP, uh, uh, senators. But there's a possibility we start 2021 with a Democratic president who's able to get a decent amount of legislation through. Or we could be in a position where we have a Democratic president who's essentially able to get none. Hmm. No, no and, and that turns on a single, a single vote. You know, it's worth mentioning it's also. It, it is a very, very important difference. But even in the best case scenario, Joe Biden's agenda is really not that outlandish. No, no. The main advantage of having Biden win the election back in November was that that Trump was no longer the president. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that and a, lo- a that lot of the main thing that we wanted out of this, and that will be achieved. A lot of the way. stuff that Biden has said he will focus on that is a bit more radical, for example, climate change. He can do a fair amount of that through executive action. It, it's just that the worry is that then if we have a Republican president in the future, that could just be undone overnight. Totally. Um, whereas legislation is much harder to unpick, of course. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, certainly, in order to have got anything really radical done, the Democrats would have needed a sizable majority in the Senate. I mean, talking 54, 55 seats before you could start getting things like Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico stateship, for example, through. Um, I don't think that's going to go through on a, on a 50, 50 vote, you know, plus tiebreaker kind of split. I think there'd be enough moderate Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, who would shy away from that. There's a question um, to be asked about um, the left opposition to the Democrats. In in what um, in which scenario would they have an easier time organising and achieving them, making ground against them? Because it was un- under Obama, they made a lot more ground than they did under Trump from a certain perspective. Like we we, we got the Bernie 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. Is it, is, having a bad Democrat is a is a more conducive thing to be opposing than yes. Trump. Yeah. But is a bad no, Democrat I, I who agree. controls the Senate or a de- bad Democrat who doesn't control the yeah. Senate better or worse? I think it's very, very hard to say. Yeah, I think it's hard to say too. Um, I suppose I suppose having a bad Democrat who controls the Senate means that then it's Bernie Sanders that has the whip hand. Yeah. Because anything that Bernie Sanders doesn't back doesn't go through, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, people like Joe Manchin have a lot of power in a, in a situation like that. People who are on the right of the Democratic Party, but also people like Bernie Sanders also have a similar amount of power who are on the far left of the sort of Democratic caucus. Obviously, he's yeah. not actually a Democrat. And, and it means that the, the, the Democrats can't just go, well, the reason why we didn't achieve anything is because we didn't have the Senate. They don't have that excuse. No, no yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not as if people haven't got stuff done with narrow Senate majorities in the past. Mm. Uh, it is doable. You just have to play the politics right. <clears throat> And honestly, Obama was very lazy and didn't, partly because he didn't like politics, mm. um, and he didn't he didn't like to be seen to be that kind of political operative, that kind of you know bashing heads together in the Senate and trying to hash out a compromise. He didn't like that kind of politics. He liked to be sort of just be seen very serene and above the fray. And I think getting anything done with a narrow Senate majority is going to require very hands-on. Whether whether Biden is that president or not, I don't know. I think it's more likely than Obama, honestly. Um, because he does have that sort of history and sort of more of the democratic machine politics that Obama didn't have. Mm. Obama sort of came out of a legal background, whereas whereas um, Biden's been a, a politician all his life. Really. Um, yes, and then you have Although Harris Obama's as well, who I think is from the central most powerful, or at least he wasn't at the time, from the central most powerful faction within the Democrats. He wasn't like a leftist or anything, but he wasn't the, the anointed successor who was going to run in 2008 was Hillary Clinton, and Obama yes. managed to make a successful pitch as an alternative yes. to her. Um, Running from Biden is not that. Biden was the chosen yeah. candidate. Yeah. It will be interesting. I mean, uh, speaking of sort of 
politics in the American Congress, you also have this question about Nancy Pelosi's speakership, hmm. and whether she's going to be in the new speaker, because obviously it has to go out for a vote. And the, the House, the Democratic House majority isn't particularly large anymore because no. actually lost seats at the general election, contrary to expectations. And there has been some talk on the left of the party about whether now is the time for the left, the left wingers in the party, people like Cassio Cortez and, and the sort of new new <laughs> members of that wing as well, to threaten to vote against Pelosi as speaker in order to get concessions. Um, mm. I don't know what you think of that. I... Um... I think it's one of those things where there's legitimate disagreement on it, right? It's a, it's a, uh-huh. um, because what they're demanding in, in exchange is that is a vote on Medicare for all, right? Which definitely yeah. won't pass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but if what's the point in having people in Congress unless they're going to yeah. do something? I think it's, it's hard to say. It, do we want to spend any political capital on this, even though it won't achieve very much? But if we're not going to, then exactly, what are we yeah. To? Does the left just sit back and basically not do anything um, for the next? two years until the next house election and then try and see where things go i think that there's a good chance that the next because i think i think i'm right in saying that the next senate map is looking potentially okay for the democrats because the last one this one was quite good for the democrats and it didn't go very well but the, the one prior to that was terrible for the democrats so i think the one next year or, or in 2022 will be okay for the democrats but then there'll be the incumbent party so i don't know it may well be the case that if the democrats can't take the senate now they won't take it tall for the next four years in which case this is there's a dynamic whereby um because democrats often don't do so well on midterms because the turnout's low um yeah but in the 2018 ones they did they bucked that trend they actually did quite well Mm, and yeah yeah big time when there's not a sort of when it's a presidential election that gets all the headline but if there's a midterm where you have unexpectedly high turnout like in 2018 the the top of the ballot race doesn't suck all of the attention to it mm. which allows like the, the the face of the democrats doing quite well in 2018 was ocasio cortez right yes just be- even though she's just one house race because it was the most interesting individual story in this much bigger so it's not got a ready-made sort of unifying thread in one race in the presidential race. Mm. so there's much more room for interesting stuff going on all over the place in the margins <laughs> which is the sort of place where the left is more likely to be able to be doing two or three quite interesting things to become the mm, story. Yeah. Especially if you, like, get a lefty in the Senate, that would be a good next step beyond, you know, the squad basically comes into existence in 2018, it expands in 2020, then it starts to push into the Senate in 2022. That would yeah, be a good story to definitely. tell. Yeah. And I, I think, having had the 2016 Sanders campaign, the 2020 Sanders campaign, which, did, which both of which did surprisingly well, I would say, Mm. Um, even if not as well as we would have liked um, and the expansion of the squad as you say in 2020 also there is that momentum now there is that infrastructure that groups like DSA, Justice Democrats etc have been building since 2016 um, really yes. I think you know in, in the British left we have, we've had this massive unexpected victory into the 2015 leadership election and then we've sort of had to work backwards from there whereas in America mm. they've done it the other way around they've been building up and building up and building up and they've had these two big runs at president but the fact that they didn't win the nomination isn't like uh, they were never building the movement off of this yeah. single leadership from which they were working it hasn't it hasn't proven as as destructive as jeremy corbyn's loss in 2019 because hmm. that was never sanders was never really the whole point even though he was the flag the flagship the standard bearer whereas in 
Whereas in this country, Jeremy Corbyn very much did, unfortunately. I think even he would say, unfortunately, well, especially him probably, would say, became the, the sort of whole point of the movement. You know, momentum became an explicitly Corbyn defence operation, which is a shame, as we've spoken about before. Yes. And whilst it's a, it is, is of course, a big blow, I think mm. that there is a way in which the current situation, once we sort of were still in the process of recovering from the shock and coming down off the high, but it could end up being quite a healthy situation for us, for us to build in a more sort of solid foundation way. Because all of the points that they're making and all of the real constituency in the country which drove the whole Corbyn is still still there and all still yeah. progressing. Some of it has left the Labour Party, but that's not yeah. the end of the world. But, it, but before Corbyn, it wasn't No, exactly. I mean, I wasn't in the Labour Party before Corbyn. I'm not currently in the Labour Party, but that's mainly, mainly due to a clerical issue more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, I ran out of money, basically. My 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 my, my membership lapsed because uh, right, I didn't right. have any m- money in my account. And uh, yeah, yeah. And if you look at the left groups within the Labour Party, the Campaign for Labour Party, Democracy, the Socialist Campaign Group, there's this kind of um, there's this conspicuous absence of a certain age group. There's lots of people like in their sixties and above, and there's lots of people like twenty five and under, but there's mm. no one in between because there's this kind of lost generation where. There was no outlet for people of that era to get involved with Labour Party policy. But the fact that it's not just people over 60, it's also people under 30, and that that bit's growing, suggests that the era of the left has no place in the Labour Party is basically over in, on quite a long-term yeah. basis. Which is not to say that... The, but what I'm saying is that I think the fact that the Labour Party is becoming not the only thing and not the be-all and end-all anymore could be quite mm. healthy. For, is it, we've, gone, we've arrived at it through a very traumatic process. But the position of the, aiming at being sort of half in, half out of the Labour Party is kind of where we should be trying to end up, and it is kind of where we're sort of in. Yeah, because before we were sort of entirely without the Labour Party, and I think that made us seem irrelevant to a lot of mm. people. And also without sort of anything else. There's, there was no... There was a, a sort of set of very, very small groups and parties and things that aren't parties. Um, we were both briefly with no left kind unity, of, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. With no kind of overarching organization between them and mm. then a sort of a constituency in the country which was basically a set of like media consumers but not political actors with no real mm. outlet um, and we shifted from there to being basically the Labour Party <laughs> um, and I think the shift that we're moving to now is a kind of maturation process where the the Labour Party is becoming not the be-all and end-all of it but there is this sense of a movement an actual unified set of institutions that work together yeah. effectively uh, did you see um Owen Jones's interview with John McDonnell. Oh no, I got that in a watch later playlist. But I haven't yeah, got I, I mean, he's saying very similar things. Essentially, that you know, he he thinks that you know the 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 election was a shock, but that we've got a good sort of base on which to build. Basically, saying exactly what you're saying, which is why I bring it up. It was in yeah. my head, but yeah. I mean, basically, Keir Starmer only won the leadership with the votes of about half of the people who basically share our politics. Yeah, right. He wouldn't have been able to win if it, if he wasn't able to convince a lot of people that he was uh, basically a socialist, right? And those people aren't going to suddenly stop having that opinion and stop trying to organise for that end, right? There are, there are people in Momentum who voted for yeah, Starmer. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think part, uh, partly at least because, unfortunately, Rebecca Longbeard's campaign wasn't particularly impressive. And as you said earlier, it, 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 it took a long time to get off the get ground because yeah. um, there, there was a period of time where people thought Ian Lavery might run as well or instead of, and it, it got a bit messy. Yeah, and, and also it was all happening in public, which really reveals a kind of lack of planning for this eventuality. Well, I just don't, yeah, I just don't think it had been planned for. 
yeah. because everything um, was so focused around Corbin, and it, I, I think I think planning for a post-Corbin age would would have destroyed the morale. Hmm. And it's not it's not it's not even necessarily a mistake. Like it was it it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do to go all in on this once in a generation opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's the only thing we can do. And the fact that it's failed doesn't mean we've got nothing else. It just means that we were going all in on this one thing. But we've got there's loads of stuff we can do. And only a few months later, the left within the Labour Party was able to effect like very effectively organise its campaign for the NEC yeah. election. Right. So actually held, held on to more seats than before it was going to. And a bit of organisation. The Labour left has has, has a quite a strong constituency and the ability to win elections if it wants to. Mm. If it plans for it. And if it's not just expended all of its energy on a different election campaign, which is now completely demoralised and dejected. There was there were very few moments in which Kiyostama could win an election. Right? There was an opportunity there was a window which he took very effectively. But that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean well that's it, they labeled it. No, I agree. There. I agree. Um, the only the danger would be if they effectively managed to purge the left, which yeah. there are definitely people who want to do that. And there are definitely people who are trying to use various internal struggles within the party to, to pursue that. Yes, as we talked um, about the other week. But I don't think that there's... I that's not a given, right? That's, they're not necessarily going to... No. And, by, and, by, and I suppose by sort of, you know, one of McDonald's points in that interview I mentioned was that was that leaving the Labour Party kind of accomplishes that sort of purge for them. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I am... My, my personal relationship with the Labour Party is very torn. I, I was never... I'm, I was never particularly attached to the Labour Party as a, as a movement. I didn't grow up with it. I grew up in a very um, sort of working-class Tory kind of neighbourhood, I suppose you would say, uh, verging into UKIP territory in, in, in many, many areas. I'm quite um, in that respect. Yeah, I didn't have the institutional connections. Neither of my parents were Labour voters. Um, and so and I didn't get into left-wing politics through the Labour Party. I got into it independently. Um through, through punk music, honestly. Huh. Radicalised by bad religion. Uh, more or less. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then... And so I, got, I only got in, I only joined the Labour Party after, 20, after the 2017 general election. I didn't even join to vote for Corbyn because I just didn't think it was... I didn't think it was going to win. So I, I, no, I, I, no, I joined after 2015. I didn't vote for him the first time. I wasn't part yeah. of the party. Um, but I joined by the... Yeah. By no, I didn't... I didn't even... I joined after the 2017. I think I had a, I think I had a period of, of, of sort of bad mental health. I think where I just wasn't as plugged into politics, and so I didn't join the party after 2015, and then I did after the 2017 election um, because I, I, you know, the massive strides that Labour made in that election under a left wing leadership made me sort of very feel very hopeful. Um, so I was only actually in the party for what you know two and a half years, something like that. Right. So I don't, I, I don't personally feel like I have a huge personal connection with it. Um, to me, it's very much a uh, a tactical thing. Is the is the Labour Party the best vehicle for achieving movement towards a socialist society? And under Jeremy Corbyn, I think the answer to that was yes. Now he's gone. I, I don't I don't know that that is the case anymore. If I just psychoanalyze myself a bit, the I I was quite convinced that the Labour Party was just useless. <laughs> Before, mm. before Gordon became leader. It was like, what's this? Because we'd just come off of Blair, Brown, and then Miliband supporting austerity. And then yeah. No, I didn't <laughs> have a very, I didn't Labour have a very good opinion. No point Miliband. in the Labour Party. Um, but there were people that I knew who were in the Labour Party who were making the argument, no, no, no. It, basically all the arguments that 
that you could make now of, of oh yeah we should be in the Labour Party even though it's not great we can we can it's a good vehicle for socialists to be in etc um, and I just disagreed with them very thoroughly I thought no that's not, that's not true you're deluding yourself um, and the fact that Corbyn was able to become leader and then fight two elections one of which he very nearly won you know that um, uh, uh, won the won the general election um, has has proved to me in my mind that it's at least it that it's not completely a hide it to nothing right that the, the people in 2013 2014 who were telling me no the Labour Party is a worthwhile thing to be engaged with were actually they had a good point actually I didn't agree with them at the time but it turns out they were kind of right mm. Corbyn could then happen and the Labour Party now compared to then is a much better place so if they were yeah. right then they're probably right now as well right? that's that's interesting yeah that's 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 a fair way of thinking about it I think it's an interesting way of thinking yeah, but also I think it's quite important for the left not to get too caught up in that to the exclusion of all else. Right? Yes, there are lots of people who will not want to be in the Labour Party for various reasons, and I I think that's fine. I don't think they're doing anything wrong. By yeah, doing that. yeah. So I don't know if I'm going to rejoin or not. We'll see. We'll see. And We've if, kind of been doing. If, if parliamentary politics is what you're going for, if you're going, let's get some democratic socialist yeah. MPs into the House of Commons. Probably Definitely, the Party is the right way to go. Definitely. Right? You know, your your options otherwise are otherwise are. Suppose if you live in Bristol, you might throw yourself behind the Greens or Brighton, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, will the Greens have one seat or maybe two? Wild dreams, maybe three. And at the same time, there's thirty to thirty-five socialist MPs elected on yeah. Labour Party. Yeah. And the disadvantage all. is they don't have their own institution. Right? They can be dis- they can be attacked by their own general secretary, banned from talking about issues. Um, yeah, but I mean, even the Green Party is ignored by the press because they don't have their own press officer. Want yeah. to do with their own press officer, but they don't get invited to anything. They don't yeah. get speaking roles on the BBC or whatever. Yeah. Um, they don't get short money of their own, etc. But yeah. you know, swings and roundabouts. I mean, yeah, yeah. Once in a blue moon, they might win the leadership of the party and maybe become nice. honest. Be nice. We've, we've kind of been doing a sort of 2019 retrospective, accidentally. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> should we should we move on to a 2020 retrospective? Let's do a 2020. Yeah, let's you? let's talk about 2020 because it's it's the new year. Yeah, I've 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 just done the same thing actually. Um and taken my jumper off because the heating's gone on. Um Actually let's take this break, I'm gonna go to the that's toilet. That's fair, I might get a drink then. Back in a sec. Just we back. Are you there, Moriarty? Hello? Howdy. Hey. How you doing? Pretty good. Oh, hang on. Good. I was ready for to get a... water as well. That was the other thing. Alright, now I'm back and ready. Alright, ready for a 2020 retrospective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's been a year. <laughs> it has been a year. <laughs> yeah, so, um, free arranging ramble about 2020 incoming. So be prepared. Uh, we're, what, about an hour in, so. We're putting it off. Basically. Yeah, we have. <laughs> So that's been a year that we've just had. Did anyone enjoy that year? Do you know what? On a day-to-day basis, I probably enjoyed it only a bit less than a normal you, year. You're such a sunny optimist. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite sunny in the middle there for a bit, for example. It was. It was glorious sunshine, sort of May to June, I will say that. May, May to August, really, even. It was yes. glorious. There was this... We, we got a paddling pool in our house for the back garden because we knew we'd be spending a lot of time in, you know, not going yeah. out. Um, on and so on those few days where it was, you know, 35 plus degrees, we got, we decided, right, we're actually going to get it. We're actually going to get it set up. We're going to fill it with water, etc. Um, and then after we'd spent, you know, several hours trying to get it to work, because we don't probably have a hose by that point, carrying water back and forth in buckets, 
And then the sun went in. <laughs> I came over that day, didn't I? Was that the day I came over to pick up some haggis? Oh, it might have been. Seem or that to might have been the second one. It might be the second one. We did it a couple right. of times. So the first time we did it, it then got really... We were sat in it, and it was it was water straight out the cold tap that then you know, he cried right. after it, and then the sun went in. So we were sat in there, and it was freezing. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> like, we've gone from it being, like, 36 degrees in an English summer, which is really hot. Yeah. <laughs> To all sat it's the most English thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. group of people all sat around shivering, really freezing yeah. on the hottest day of the year. <laughs> I mean, for, for people who don't know England, 36 degrees in England is hotter than 36 degrees anywhere else except possibly the Amazon rainforest. Right. right? Because it's so humid in the summer. Yeah, it's it really humid here. We don't, you know, 36 degrees in Greece or somewhere like that, where I've been a couple of times, that's, that's lovely. That's yeah. lovely. You can beautiful sunshine, slap on a bit of sun cream, and you can go for a walk in that. You know, I've been hiking with 36 degree heat in Greece. In England, you stay sat in a chair, or if you've yeah. got one to hand, Can't a paddling pool, and you don't move because yeah. the air is so thick you can cut it. Yeah. Really oppressive here. It's horrible. I hate English summer. In the North Atlantic. Yeah, bloody jet stream, bloody and Gulf I, stream. It never got that hot until like three years ago. I swear. No, it was no, like thirty degrees was twenty-seven degrees was like a hot summer's day. Nah, this is glo- was like oh, once or twice in my whole life. And this is global like three warming years alarmism. In a row, it's been thirty-eight degrees every year. Nah, this is global warming alarmism. Two thousand and six. Two thousand and six. Oh yeah, I remember 2006. 2006 was so hot. We had a, we have a passion fruit plant in our back garden, which we didn't know. It was grow grows over from our neighbours. We didn't know what it was. In 2006, it fruited. We had passion fruit in England. That is that's never happened since. <laughs> so that that was that wow. was proper hot. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it obviously has gotten. I I, I am joking. Like, like, when I say it's global warming, thing, stuff and, oh. definitely has gotten warmer. Britain is definitely. really far north. As well, but like you travel north from Scotland, and there's like nothing until yeah. Last. Well, it's Shetland, I suppose. Yeah, you can, Shetland, you can Faroe right, Islands. Shetland. People have often tried. <laughs> uh, I've been horrible. I've never been. I'm sure it's lovely. Probably a bit yeah, wet, but either. it's full, full of Vikings. But you know, whatever. Yeah, isn't you're from Essex. So. I'm not sure if it's a myth, but isn't there a thing about um, Shetland is the only place where you can eat the swans? Because I hadn't heard that. Swans are. Uh, in, in Britain are owned by the Queen. Mute so you're swans. not allowed to Mute um, swans. Yes, yes, mute It's swans. only mute swans. But there's an old Viking law in Shetland that declares that they're owned by everyone. So you can eat the swans. Right. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, no, it is it's only mute swans that are owned by the Queen. People often want to say uh, it's all swans, but it's not it's only one species. And the reason is is because back in the fourteenth century or something, the 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 Queen of France gave the Queen of England a sort of present of six mute swans. And mm. mute swans aren't native to the UK, so all the mute swans in 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 the UK are in theory descended from these sort of original breeding pairs. Oh, I didn't know that um, story. Which probably means that the genetic diversity is pretty bad. But um so hopefully <laughs> they don't get ill. But uh yes. So that that's the sort of origin Much of it. like the monarchy themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Let's not let's not go too far down that road, we'll get uh get taken off air. Uh-huh. Can you I don't know if you can take a podcast off air. Um probably. It's probably, I suppose everyone could just yeah, refuse to offline. host you. Yeah, everyone could just refuse to host you. We're curr- yeah. We are currently hosted both by SoundCloud and Anchor FM. And and I, I occasionally website. remember to put the episodes on YouTube, but I haven't done the last couple of times, so I'm sorry about mm. that. Anyway, 2020. 2020, so, yeah. It was a year of interesting politics. 
Mm. What was the most surprising thing that happened in 2020? With the given that there was a pandemic no one was expecting. But let's put that to one side. Um, politically, what do you think was the most surprising sort of event of 2020? Hmm. I think the thing which certainly sort of blindsided me the most was the suspension of Jeremy Right, Corbyn. yeah. I remember finding out I was just complete disbelief. Mm. <laughs> which it shouldn't really have been. I should have said it coming. <laughs> Yeah, well, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been saving that up. Going to make that the title of the episode, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop me. <laughs> That's good. That was a good one. I refuse to apologise. Yeah. What um, do you think? What was, what was my surprise? I don't know. I've sort of surprised myself in my own question. Um, <laughs> I think maybe... I think maybe the Cummings thing. Right. I think, honestly, it might be... Both sort of the sort of two bookends of the coming story this year of oh he's done this ridiculously stupid thing but somehow all the Tories have rallied around him mm. and then the sort of that's the sort of first boot and then you you wait for the second boot to drop and then all of a sudden he just goes for sort of seemingly no reason at all yeah um, really compared to earlier in the year when there was an obviously very good and I I can't I suppose I can't quite, that's the thing I can't quite get my head around is is why. Dominic Cummings, having fought so hard to keep him in place, um, and spent so much political capital, and sort of really damaged people's trust in the government at a time where trust in the government was sort of the most important thing in the world. Um, why, having done all that, they just sort of let him go fairly unceremoniously one weekend? Yeah. It was a really, uh, really bad move, the, the, the Bernard Castle thing. Yeah, I really see that as a turning point in the public's uh, sort of attitude towards the lockdown of the rules. Before that, people were definitely took it like an order of magnitude more yeah. seriously. Yeah, and that's not to say that people haven't. I mean, overall compliance is still pretty good. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and pe- the, the I, I want to make the point that the people of this country have been doing a damn sight better at fighting coronavirus than the government have. Um, shock horror. But no. but yeah, I definitely do think that it damaged trust in a really sort of fundamental way, and it made it a lot. It made it a lot more difficult, I think. To swallow a lot of the government's own sort of propaganda around it, around that they, you know, were trying to look after our health and all this kind of thing. And then I also think that it it probably engendered quite a lot of because of because initially the Tory party was relatively sort of quiet about the lockdown. You could tell a lot of them didn't like it, but they were fairly quiescent at least. Yeah. And then I think after the the Barna Castle thing, I think people. I think people got so on the back benches, Tory back benches, who were sort of told that they had to go out on a limb to defend this guy, who was really indefensible. But they were sort of and told by the whips. Did not like anyone. Yeah, but they were sort of told by the whips that they had to do this. And I think it caused such bad feeling that I think because in in the sort of time since then, you've seen all of these other research groups popping up. You've got your China research group and your Northern research group and your COVID response group and all these kinds of things. Yeah, I don't think. I don't. It might be going too far to say I don't think they would have existed without the Cummings fiasco, but I certain. I think that's maybe possible, and I certainly think it accelerated the kind of factionalizing of the Tory backbenchers. It created a lot of bad feeling, a yeah, lot of bad feeling. There's a point I made in I think the previous podcast might be the one before that. That 2020, um, I think, will have the effect of being sort of the moment when the long 20th century ended when the 21st century really started. I mm. think similar things happened here, where like the the honeymoon period after the landslide election would always have come to an end at some point, but this allowed it to all come to an end at the same at one moment. 
and everyone's like, yeah. okay, open season, the honeymoon period's over, we'll form our own factions and do whatever we like mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting... So, yeah, so let's talk about a bit more broadly then. So you were saying the sort of the end of the long 20th century, and I, I was thinking about a very... I was thinking a very similar thing the other day. Um, it just sort of came to me, actually, not really from anywhere, because um, I'm, I'm such a genius. No. Uh, <laughs> it just sort of occurred to me that like, this is kind of... I was sort of thinking of it, I suppose a sort of 1815 in the Napoleonic Wars to to sort of the, the First World War, sort of the British century. And then the First World War on... You sort of see the Americans come to the fore. And even even through the Cold War, where you have the Soviet Union as a sort of rival in sort of propaganda terms, it would never really... You could never really compete in terms of economic output, never in terms of military close. power. Yeah. Um, there was maybe a, a couple of years in the sort of late 40s, early 50s, where the economic output of the Soviet Union started to catch the americans a little but then the americans roared away in the 50s um yeah because the great depression never happened in the Soviet yeah because they're not they're, they're not capitalist yeah <laughs> they didn't rely or, or it really didn't market. have as much of that i'm sure there were knock-on effects but but oh, um, yeah, t- totally totally but they yeah were, they were only going the five-year plans and rapid industrialization and that kind of thing 30s. yeah but um so i sort of think of that sort of the first world war onwards to now as really the american century and I really think what with Trump and the COVID crisis and the way the Americans have handled that and the really severe economic damage that's been done to the US, sort of, you had 2008 and you've had this pandemic recession, you've had trade wars and all these kinds of things that just sort of knocked away at them. I wonder whether this is the closing of the American century and maybe we're at the beginning yeah. of, oh, I don't know, the Chinese century. Because well, I think... It's China. Yeah, and I think because you only have to look at how they responded to the pandemic, right? Obviously, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic began in China, it began in, in Wuhan, um, and it, it began in sort of late November, early December. They sort of became aware of it towards the end of December, beginning of January. And it, it should be said that the, that the Wuhan state government did try and keep it, or provincial government rather, did try and keep it hush-hush for a little bit, and that probably did knock back the science a few weeks at least. But then when the, when the national government sort of got involved, it should also be said that they very quickly um, made the science public. Um, and so if, if there's anyone that can be blamed, it's the Wuhan provincial government, not the Chinese national government for, for, for any delay to the science in any case. Um, but, if, you know, I don't know if you saw the New Year celebrations in, in Wuhan. I mean, obviously, it's, oh, Chinese. Yeah. it's not Chinese New Year yet, so they haven't had the really big ones. But even the sort of calendar New Year celebrations in in Wuhan were sort of quite something. Um, totally. And, and, and the way... We have in the West. Yeah, the way they have dealt with that pandemic so efficiently compared to the West. And I mean, China by no means dealt with it the best, actually. I think people who have dealt with it the best are countries like Vietnam. I think Vietnam still only have about 35 deaths total. And they they had rice vending machines that they put out. Um, mm. I love these things. These, they, they, right at the beginning of the pandemic, they were like, right, everyone, we've got rice vending machines... So you go up to your machine, you wipe it off with a bit of anti antibacterial sanitizer, you press the button, you get your rice, you leave, and the next person comes off, wipes off your jet, and so you don't even have to go into a supermarket, it's just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Done. Beautiful. Because we're still shuffling up and down within, you know, three feet of each other down the yeah. supermarket corridor. Yeah. Beautiful, wonderful idea. Uh, we should have they should we should have those year round. Uh, all the time, I think. Be wonderful. I'd love a pasta vending machine as well. We could have a bread <laughs> bread vending machine, we could do all the carbs, be great. Um, but yeah, but, but I mean, China, relative to most European and American, North American countries have, have done spectacularly well 
with the virus and also uh, China and also Russia have been developing their own vaccines without really any without much sort of reliance on the mainly American, British, Dutch pharmaceutical companies that have made the vaccines we have here um, and, and, and so much of the so much of the kind of the broader medical industry has been highly reliant on stuff from China you know really since yeah. really since the pandemic hit Europe um, and the Chinese sort of original pandemic sort of died down a bit it very quickly went from Europe and, and America sending you know PPE and stuff to China that very quickly turned around the other way and it's been the other way ever since and not just to Europe and America but obviously to Africa and places like that where China already has very strong economic connections in East Africa and, and other places uh, yeah I don't know I think this could be as you said, uh, sort of the end of the long 20th century, mm. but I think also Neo-China possibly... China rise from the future. Yeah, possibly China's resurgence, you should, I should, you should say, really, rather than rise, because I don't, well, know, yes, if you've, the, don't know if you've heard of the, 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 the Ming dynasty, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Ming kingdom is returning to business as yes, usual. Yes, essentially, um, yeah. I think it's extremely unlikely that China will achieve the kind of monopolar global domination that America had, because the, America's position in 1945 was so unique that allowed mm-hmm. them to achieve this unbelievable level of completely unrivaled mastery. That's unlikely to happen. I think it's more likely to be a bit like um, before the Second World War, where America was clearly the ascendant power, but the European empires were still sort of chugging along in this atrophied sense. Mm. And if, unless there's a shock like the Second World War, it is possible for empires to carry on like that relatively happily for actually quite a long time. The Ottoman Empire springs to yes. yeah. was able to have centuries of what we call stagnation. But, you know, if you manage to keep it up for centuries, it's kind of a stability. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think you could totally see the British Empire doing that if it wasn't for the Second mm. World War, with America being the actual really powerful one, but the British Empire just carrying. Um, and that's kind of similar to what it was before Napoleon as well, where Britain and France and Spain were, there were several empires. So I think we're, we're, we're likely to move into a more multipolar world than mm. we've been used to for a while. It's not going to be like the British Empire or the American Empire. But probably, I think China will be the most important of several quite big powers. America and Europe are still going to be there. India is going to become more important. Something's going to arise out of Africa, that sort of stuff. But China's going to be the mm. driving. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a fair, a fair counterpoint. Definitely, I, I I think you're probably right in that in that um, the position of the USA is sort of a sort of something that we haven't really seen in 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 sort of Europe. Uh, uh, the sort of the sort of Western world, inverted commas, really since Rome. <laughs> mm, I mean, yeah. ironically, China has played that role in in Asia, yeah, know, totally. uh, for much of its history of that kind of monolithic power. But certainly since the sort of globalization um, of and, and the bringing of the whole world into sort of one geopolitical system. Yeah, I think also, America's quite unique. Also, there's a certain perspective in history that that lends itself to analysing the collapses of empires as being apocalyptic, world-ending things. From a different perspective, they can be quite good. If you're, you know, a slave in Imperial Rome, then the collapse of the empire means you being able to run away and find a bit of land and become a peasant, which is an improvement on being a slave. Uh, The collapse of the empires tended to mean the development of the European welfare states. It's often the case that that once the ruling class stops having an empire, that doesn't necessarily mean that the actual livelihoods of most of the people in the mother country decline very can mean they improve. That can certainly. You could, you could totally see the American Empire falling apart, is what I mean. But also, yeah. America actually becoming some kind of like actually more open, free, democratic welfare state kind of society. That, that, or possibly that's... democratic socialist. 
great. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that that I think is yeah definitely definitely a possibility. I mean I would I maybe maybe quibble your Roman example a little bit, but that, that's my that's, that's that's me sort of being a bit finicky um, all the sort of nature of slavery in, in ancient Rome. But I take your general point. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. I wonder. I think of like like the average life expectancy went up after the collapse. I think it depends where you look. Right. right. Um, I think that's certainly true. That's certainly going to be true in areas that were that 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 went from a fairly high intensity kind of proto peasant agriculture to being a more open, as you say, sort of somewhat freer um, society. Maybe in sort of areas of sort of northern what is now northern France. It's probably less I'm true. I'm not remembering where I learned this from, but um, the, so I may be misremembering it. I think it was something to do with like because you, if you have a um, less of a centralized authority, they can't raise such big armies or fight such large scale. Wars. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, be smaller scale with smaller armies. C- certainly, that does happen. Although, again, it, it happens piecemeal and quite slowly in places. I mean, you have to also remember that in the east, the Roman Empire doesn't collapse, right? So, so you have right, totally. And then, and then, obviously, in in you have the rise of the sort of caliphate, and and so that. Yeah, the period, the period sort of from like four hundred to eight hundred, which we sort of think of as the Dark Ages, quote unquote, is is extraordinarily complicated, and I wouldn't want to make any generalizations about it. Um, but yeah, I think that's partly why we call it the Dark Ages, not because really that much of records, but just because no one wants to talk about it because it's too. Yeah, just I think that is definitely that is definitely part of it. There's also there's also a lot there's also here I go there's also a sense in which it's often considered to be part of the early Middle Ages, um, right. and I actually think there's a good case for considering it not necessarily instead of but also as part of the um, of late antiquity, yeah, of late antiquity because because I think you know you have phenomena like um, the Carolingian Empire you have the mm. sort of uh, the Rashid and the Umayyad the Abbasid Caliphates. You have, you have the kind of, and even in the sort of, you know, you have a, a, a Europe, particularly a Northern Europe, which is still Christianizing, so you don't yet have the sort of medieval institutions of church and feudal state, which mm. will come to dominate. I mean, feudal is a, is a, is a problematic term as well, but, but you, you don't have the sort of classic medieval institutions really until quite late, really until the 10th, even the 11th centuries. In, 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 I mean, you really don't have the classic sort of medieval institutions in England until the sort of just before the Norman conquest. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Anyway, that's not really what we're here to talk well, about. It's just, it's the Empire <laughs> of the Byzantines, that's after the fall of Rome, but they reconquer Rome twice. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Justinian's fascinating. And Belisarius, of course, is general actually does a lot of work. Justinian just sits, sits in Constantinople and directs building projects. Although he did build the, I can never pronounce it properly, so I'm just going to call it the Hagia Sophia. Um, that's not how you pronounce it, but uh, I'm going to. It's something uh, much more is, familiar in Latin, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have lovely building, mosque now, of course. Um, yeah, mosque well, again. Actually, I think I think is it, is it a mosque again? Right. Yeah. Because it was um, made into just a museum. It was made into a museum. Oh, wow. Erdogan's turned it back into a mosque because of his sort of right. is, Islamist project, um, which I don't. I don't quite know how to feel about that. Um, you know, it started as a. I know that there are people who I think I think it's really a meme, but <laughs> there are Orthodox Christian meme pages and, <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that where they they talk about trying to sneak Orthodox ministers in so that they can perform mass <laughs> secretly. <laughs> yeah. They call mass in the Orthodox. Yeah. Church. Yeah, that's probably just the Eucharist still, I would have thought. Right, yeah. Rather than calling it math in particular. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think um, 
I definitely think it being a museum was fairer because you sort of have the two you can you can represent both the sort of the Christian period and the and the Muslim period and even the pagan period because I, I think it was a, just like mm-hmm. a temple before that um, so you can represent things more fairly anyway yeah but yeah it's a mosque again. yeah well I think I think the, the process of 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 the Ottomans conquering Constantinople and having this incredible cathedral and thinking we're going to repurpose this as a mosque is a kind of example of cross-cultural co- collaboration from a certain degree. Like there's, there's this place in um, in Cordoba, the Grand Mosque yes. of Cordoba, I think, yes. where they've there's this incredible, um, uh, there's this great effect that, that happens as you walk into it of all the pillars uh, are sort of arranged such that they look like they go on forever and they're this beautiful mm. sort of red marble. It's an incredible mosque, one of the buildings in Spain. But if, as you go through it, like it's like a forest that looks like it's infinite, but then you come upon this magnificent, uh, like gold-laced, intricate Catholic cathedral, mm. which they've just plonked right in the middle. Because yeah. in the Reconquista, when they were destroying all of the mosques um, uh, in, in southern Spain, they came upon this one and were like, we just can't destroy this, it's too good, and, uh. and asked for dispensation to be able to keep it. So they're like, yeah, yeah, you can do that. We'll build a cathedral in the middle of it, but keep it. Anyway, it's that's come- what I think of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, what what do you think about what do you think about the position the left is in? I suppose at the end of twenty twenty, you know, in this country globally, you know, what what what's your take on on, well, on the, the state of the left? Um, we've obviously just in the Anglophone world suffered two uh, significant mm-hmm. defeats um, with the Bernie and Corbyn. There's 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 very little chance that either. Bernie or Corbyn will become president or prime minister. Um, but, never say never. Pardon? <laughs> never say never. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never say no. We, we really don't know. Given this year, we yeah. really don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> really um, but if you take a, a, one read on that, I think is that we've had to make a bid for power. So, so the left was basically like scoured from the West <laughs> throughout the nineties and two thousands with the mm-hmm. triumph of neoliberalism. In the, um, and now we're back, right? So one way of putting the state of the left is there is one now, right? Which mm. is an improvement. Um, and also, it's, I think we know what we want a bit more than we did before, rather than just what we're against. We have partic- we have stuff that we want. Green New Deal is the big yeah, one. Yeah, I, I think the Green... I, yeah, I'll come back to the Green New Deal, but I think that is the sort of paradigmatic example of that, definitely. Yeah. Um, and in America, Medicare for all, obviously. Because um, mm. this is what you want to do. You want to be two steps ahead of where... The society is all right. You want to be not way off in the theoretical distance, such that it doesn't seem feasible, but you don't want to be like just tinkering around the edges. You want to be just putting right on the edge of what seems possible, but what seems also um, like uh, like an ideal to strive for, but also mm-hmm. realistic. It's that kind of liminal middle space that we, you want to hit. And I think we've got we've got stuff which we can keep saying this is what we want um, in a way that we didn't until relatively recently. We knew what we were against, but we didn't really know what we wanted beyond, you know, something better. Um, and on top of that, we have had to make a bid for executive power before we were really ready because of certain crises that are bearing down on us, centrally among them climate change. But if you sort of uh, you correct for this big um, uh, leap for executive power that we made in Britain and America, um, which we were doing as a kind of Hail Mary in the mm. first place um, if you don't look at that and you, you take the underlying trajectory it is still in the correct mm. direction yeah yeah I, I, I certainly think that the, the sort of Hail Mary as you say bids for executive power um, have had their part to play in that 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't think the American left would be where it is without the Sanders campaign. I don't think the British left would be where where it is without the Corbyn leadership. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not like we've spent we've we've expended capital on this and thereby neglected other things necessarily. Mm. I think and it's been generative. This, we've actually significantly improved our chances in the other stuff that we will be doing mm. instead. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what about more? What about more globally? Yeah. So more globally, um, there have been victories and there have been defeats. There is, um, from the global perspective, the most important thing is the decline of the American Empire and the rise mm-hmm. of China, right? Um, but underneath that, there are there have been lots and lots of flashes of a kind of um, a well, I'll just use the word democratic socialist, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it is. In like the quarter of a billion people going on strike in India, in the Bolivian MAS um, trial, um, in in all of these examples, there's been there's been stuff which, which 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 is a kind of it's a nascent internationalist left they're all uh, conscious of each other uh, and conscious of the global north left as well um in a way that i think is very positive mm-hmm. yeah i th- i think i think that the maybe in particular the british left has work to do on its international um i think i think even the americans have been better than us lately which yeah never I'd, a good I'd sign i agree with that um i think there are movements in the right direction there has been a lot more transatlantic connection. We have been doing a lot more, I think, with sort of the left in, in America in mind, but I think it's time that we broaden ourselves beyond just that. And yeah. occasionally inviting Yanis Varoufakis to, 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 to be interviewed on Channel 4. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 certainly. <laughs> that seems to be about the extent of our internationalism. You know, with the exception Corbyn of is a bit of a unique figure in this in, in the Labour movement, in that he's got this really, he really situates himself in this internationalist mm. mode. And because he's been leader, we sort of it's given the veneer of looking like that's normal for a British leftist, but he really isn't. We've, hmm. British leftist is, is, has historically not been yeah. great on. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have to be. You know, the, the internationalist perspective is very, very core to socialism, or at least core to the kind of socialism that I think is worth yes. having. Um, and and I, and I do think that this this that it's more a matter of ignorance. Not not necessarily ignorance, but just, just indifference rather than an anti-internationalism. I don't think the British left broadly has been like a, a form of nationalist. Um, I think there've been elements. I think it's just it's just kind of ignored the rest of the world. I think right? there have been elements of that. I think I think you see this I'm, I'm sorry to say I think you saw this a little bit in um even the way that Becky Long Bailey was trying to pitch the sort of first abortive run of her campaign she was talking about progressive patriotism well, and all patriotic, this kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I and I do worry that there is that element of what if we have nationalism but make it nice. And it's like you can't do yeah. that in you can't do that in England. Nationalism can be a positive force when it's liberatory, um, when it's uh, an oppressed people coming to free themselves from uh, a sort of oppressing state. Uh, oppress, uh, you know, so it, it can have a positive impact and there. Even then, it has limitations. Yeah, absolutely, 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 it does. But it, but it can have a positive effect as far as it goes. Um, you know, you can you can see you know Basque nationalism to take an example. Um, I, I, you know, you you can see the the way that Basque nationalism and the development of the Mondragon um, sort of cooperatives have run somewhat in parallel, right? You probably mm. wouldn't have that strong mutualist culture independently of that national, or, or at least they're sort of mutually supporting. I think. Yes. Um, in in Becky Long Bailey's defence, I think that there 
there was that article she published called A Case for a Progressive Patriot. Uh, but beyond that, there wasn't really, she didn't really. No, I, no, she I didn't. It was, she... More, it, was, it was less of a, yeah. um, a real fundamental drive behind her politics and more of a sort of an attempt at a form of marketing. I, I agree. I agree with you, but I think that I think there's worrying. I, I think it's worrying that she thought that that was necessary. Worrying that she mm. thought that that might work. Even I don't. I don't want to be a member of a left where that kind of appeal is particularly powerful. Yeah. yeah. Um. I don't. I don't. I mean, you know, it's not that I don't like England as a place. I think it's beautiful. In, in you know. Um, I mean, I live in Bath at the moment, which is a gorgeous city. You know, and I, you know, no, no one, no one could possibly say otherwise. And I love the countryside. Uh, I love, I love, and not just England. I love Scotland. I love Wales. I've never been to, to Northern Ireland, but I'm sure that's also beautiful. Um, but, but as a as a place, you can you can love the place and you can love the people around you, without equating that with this kind of, um, with this sort of. The idea of a of a closed national group with like a yes. with with like a territory and 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 borders around it, both physical and sort of cultural. I think yeah, there's there's kind of two steps, both of which yeah. I disagree with that you have to get to that point. There's the the second one is the political nationalism, the idea that sort of a cultural nationalism is the right basis for a political perspective, mm. and there is cultural nationalism, the idea that the appropriate way to analyse and think about culture is with these things called nations, mm. which are a unified set of people that are distinct from each other, but unified within themselves mm. and correspond to a culture, a, a, a particular canon of literature that's homogenous in itself, but distinct exactly. from others, a language, yeah, etc. And I think you, you could... there is such a thing as yeah. French culture, yeah. German culture, and yeah. English culture, and that these are distinct things and that that's the right way to think about culture yeah and then stepping from there to these things should be the basis for political yeah order. both of those steps i think i disagree yeah. i mean i mean in, in the, the first step in particular i mean you you can see the artificiality of that if you just look at the history of of the emergence of nationalism in the 18th in the late 18th early 19th centuries um you know in order to create french culture the french revolution had to do a hell of a lot of work breaking down mm. internal borders and customs barriers unifying the language with the Académie Française. Um, they, they changed, well, they tried changing the time for a bit, that didn't quite work, but they, but they sort of unifying weights and measures because all different parts of France spoke different dialects, uh, in some cases different languages altogether. And languages. Um, they, they, they use different weights, different types of, different lengths of mile, different weights for a pound, uh, which is why they brought in a metric system to try and standardise it all. And you have the similar thing in the 19th century with, for example, the Czech Republic. They kind of invent, because, mm. um, the Czech, Czech Republic didn't exist, right? It was called Bohemia. It was a, it was a kingdom, the kingdom of Bohemia. Um, and then there and was part also... Part of the Austrian Empire for a long time. Yeah, part of the Holy Roman Empire. And there was also yeah. uh, Moravia and Silesia and various places around there. Um, and then you had Slovakia as well, which was sort of nearby, um, which ended up becoming unified with it temporarily. Um, hmm. But you, and out of this, sort of people made a Czech national, nation. They made a Czech yeah. national... It wasn't that there wasn't... A, a language that a lot of them had in common and, and, and our common cultural elements there were, but they, they had to make it into one thing before it was lots of different things which had some overlaps. Um, and it's a bit like the idea of a dialect continuum. Yeah. Um, so N Norwegian and Swedish, we think of them as two different languages, but they form what's called a dialect mm. So the, the, the various dialects of Norwegian vary amongst themselves and then 
blend into the various dialects of Swedish and then yeah. continue amongst themselves. So there's more diversity inside what we call Norwegian. than There, there are varieties of Norwegian that are more dissimilar from each other than some varieties of Norwegian are from some varieties of Swedish. Yes, and yes. then there's diversity within Swedish. So yes, drawing yes. the line between them and say, this one is this thing which we're labelling with a noun, and this one is this yes. other thing which we're labelling with a noun, and they're two different yeah, things. And it's, it's the is, same is, with... Is, it's an artificial... Concept. Yeah, it's the same with race, right? There is more genetic yeah, diversity right, within, you know, some you know, between two different groups you might identify as white than there are between some groups you might identify as white and some as, as, as non-white, right? You know... Mm. There's a tidbit um, I've just remembered about the specific to the French here, which is that we in England have this stereotype of French people. It's quite an old fashioned stereotype of like stripy black and white shirt, um, uh, beret onions around the neck on a bike with a little moustache. <laughs> yes. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about with that stereotype. Sorry to any French listeners French? Uh, who didn't yeah. know about that stereotype. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that but is French people think. have this stereotype as well. I learned, but they have this stereotype of, um, people from Britain, right? Right, Breton people yes. who don't speak French. They speak Breton, a language yeah. very similar to Welsh. Yes. So they're baffled that we think that's what a French person yeah. is when they say that's what a Breton looks like. Yeah. Right? And a lot of other, a lot of the other stereotypes we have about 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 France are, are Parisian, specifically Parisian stereotypes uh, yeah, as exactly. well. And that often happens as well. You get the sort of, much in the same way that in, in America, people think of, people think of a British accent as either being Oh yes, I am Prince Prince Charles. Yes, or as being Cockney, right? Yeah, because they're the sort of two London accents. They're not the two London. There are others, but but those are the two sort of emblematic London accents. Oh, the east yeah. You either sort of posh, posh like Richmond, or you're sort of East London, Hackney, Town Hamlets, whatever. Mm. You know, you're either Cockney or King. Uh, those are the yeah. two British accents, but they're actually just two of the accents that are quite common in London. Um. <laughs> the problem with with Americans trying to do British accents is that they often they're even if they're really good at it, they'll they'll give you an accent which is a blend of two or three different British accents that make no sense together. And we do the same with American, so it doesn't read properly. And yeah. we do the same with American. We have a general American, which sounds like nothing that actually exists yeah, in America, yeah, right. but it is what you need to do to make a British person think, "Aha, America." And you, then you had that you had that brilliant Posh Cockney, and then and then randomly one word will sound like Yorkshire. Yeah. And then suddenly it will sound like Somerset. Yeah, but you had that brilliant accent in the nineteen fifties called like Middle Atlantic. Oh yeah, yeah. Where you had sort of amazing accent. American Hollywood invented stars trying to sound more British because they thought that would make them sound sophisticated. And so you yeah, have you get this... it in you get it in like TV and film films in particular. Yeah, American films. definitely film. Yeah. I love it. It's brilliant. Listen, yeah, listen, really watch like any it. film from the 19, uh, any American Hollywood film from the 1950s, and they have these wonderful accents that no one other than sort of classically trained Hollywood actors has ever yeah, had. You have to learn it in like an acting school. Yeah, yeah. No one else, no one actually speaks like this sort of naturally. You have to, you have to specifically sit down and be taught it, and it's brilliant. And I think we should. It's like if you if you're expecting a British accent, it kind of sounds British, and if you're expecting an American accent, it kind of sounds American. Yeah, but it's actually not. Yeah, there. it's sort of like. I suppose it's sort of like if the very sort of very posh British accent met a kind of mid-Atlantic coast American accent, and they got smashed yeah. together in this really fantastic way. Love it. There's a few features of the mid-Atlantic accent that sort of lend itself to that. Like they they often have a thing where they don't pronounce R's if they follow a vowel, mm -hmm. like we do, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's what I think of nationalism. Yeah. The global left in 2020. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You come for the digressions, people. You know you do. You wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't listen to this if you didn't like digressions. <laughs> At least I have no idea why you would. Um, I think it's been a lovely conversation. 
Yeah, so do I. It has been approaching two hours, David. So, did you have any closing remarks you wanted to make? Looking forward well, to twenty twenty one. I think it's been a, it's been a good podcast, but we also definitely have not fulfilled our brief of doing a retrospective on twenty. Yeah, we just talked about random stuff. But well, I think we we've done a retrospective on twenty twenty. We haven't really explicitly talked about the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose we, yeah, I suppose we should. So, what about what about that pandemic? Eh? All right, let's 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 have a go. Um, oh, terrible. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> Do you think? So this this is a question I have. Um, it's a question I've I've heard of the people sort of voice as well. So a lot of a lot of obviously the pandemic is has required a lot of changes to the way we live. Changes to the way we work, to the way we socialise. Um, it's also engendered a lot of political change. Um, despite their best efforts, to the contrary, the Tories have had to be more generous with the public finances than they would otherwise have, have been. Um, there was, for a time, an eviction moratorium, although that's now ended. Um, mm. So I suppose the question is, what, if anything, of this period of our lives will last what things that have changed during the pandemic will survive it and what things will as the vaccines are distributed and hopefully the case numbers fall away will start to disappear of course all this is all of that is assuming that the vaccines actually work which given the yeah. fact that the conservative government is currently not actually providing the Pfizer vaccine according to the timeline that the Pfizer themselves have recommended is anyone's yeah. guess that made me livid. That was a good start to 2021. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine is supposed to be given uh, three weeks after the first. Um, and instead, the Tories are planning on giving it three months after the first so that they can give more people the initial vaccine and say that they vaccinated X number of million people. Whereas actually, no one will have had the full round of the vaccine and it is unknown as to how efficacious the vaccine will be in the meantime, and also whether it will work properly after. Well, simply the because it hasn't been dose. tested, right? Yes. The, 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 they don't know. It was developed to be administered in this way three weeks. Yes. Two, two doses, three weeks apart. Yes. And because that's how they assumed <laughs> that people will be using it, because it's how it's yes. meant to be, they simply have not tested it, so we don't know yeah. whether it. We have no idea. What the effects are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's assuming, assuming that, that we do actually see. You know, by the end of 2021, assuming that coronavirus is no longer controlling our lives, it may still be around, but but it's no yeah. longer the sort of dominant thing. What what things do you think? What changes that have happened? Do you think you wait till April, it'll disappear like magic. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't ask Trump which April he meant. That was our problem. It was. Um, uh, yeah. So I think it's very very hard to say, right? Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not dug in the question. I will answer it. But I'm just <laughs> I think we will be surprised in both directions by how much things go back to normal and also by how much changes. Um, and to put some specifics on it, I think the things that we'll, we will keep, um, one thing which I think we'll definitely keep is remote working. That, that mm. I think it was going to have to go in that direction anyway, and this has forced a lot of people who were resisting it to confront the fact that there is really no good reason why they can't let their employees do remote working when it makes sense mm-hmm. for them. Um, another one, I think is that I think on a certain real, more real level than it was before, neoliberalism is a... I think that the much bigger role for the state in the economy is mm-hmm. today. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing for the left, though, right? Because we don't just want massive states. We want to democratise power and redistribute yeah. and ownership. Um, but what I think uh, 
an era of state monopoly capitalism rather than neoliberalism as we have known it before. Because you could arguably say that it's a form of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism was never actually no, no. It was about having highly state-directed extreme markets. Yes. Um, but it it makes the... It changes the terrain of the argument in a way which I think can be good for us. Because if we're not making the argument, uh, you know, the state can be bigger, which is never really the argument we want to be making. No. If we're now making the argument, the state is big, things are possible, the economy is a realm of... is a political realm, the division between economics and states is a false division. But we think it should be run in the interests of working people on a democratic basis, and they don't. That's a better argument to be having. That's a that's a position that we can argue from much stronger, mm. I think. Yeah, and I, I, I think the other thing that we haven't talked about, which we, we certainly should, and which feeds into this, is the protests um, through much of the, of the summer against police violence. Uh, Massive. Against particularly black people uh, in America, um, which obviously spread beyond America. And, um, and into, you know, interestingly, not only did it spread beyond America, it also spread into very white areas of America, places like Seattle, which is a relatively white city, less, less so than it used to be. Um, but those, those protests, I think, which, which were a huge moment, um, I, think, I think they are partly symptomatic and partly catalyzing of a movement away from statist socialism as the sort of goal mm. because as you say we don't want to be saying we just need a bigger state but i think a lot of people yeah. on the left broadly have been saying that and with some reason because over the last sort of century or so bigger states have enabled us to create welfare states which have supported our people um yeah but really the point we've been trying to make is that economics is political yes not that the state yeah. is good right? but i think that has often accidentally become the sort of the state is good and I think yeah. those protests against police violence are an important are an important moment in moving away from that because now for the first time in a while you have s- sort of anarchist and other sort of libertarian socialist critiques of the political state moving into main sort of more mainstream left discourse you know abolish yeah. the police defund the police now that has the potential to be sort of to become very sort of narrow and just focused on police violence, which is you know worthy in and of itself. But I think it also has the potential to become more of a broad-based attack on state power as used for authoritarian purposes. Yeah. And that is a, a critique I think the, the left desperately needs to internalise because what we don't want to see is a left which sort of falls back on kind of you know authoritarian means to sort of to to sort of. Um, push its other goals um there's there's no point there's there's no there's no point having another Stalin. you know I, you know the, yep. the five-year plans are all very the five-year plans are all very well but 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 if you have massive massive repression of the of, of individuals communities along with it it's not it's not worth not worth the trade-off um yeah well zizek formulates it as um you want communism with julian assange characteristics God, i hate that phrase <laughs> everything about he that he does it deliberately to annoy people. i know everything about that is horrible <laughs> everything about that's horrible we want libertarian socialism. It's already a term for this thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> libertarian socialism, the, the tradition which has sort of run the game up from sort of left anarchism through sort of left Marxism. People like, you know, a tradition which which, which draws on people from from Kropotkin to Luxembourg to Goldman and 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 and, and sort of the more libertarian moments in the sort of mainstream Marxist tradition. Uh, Lenin's April theses, 
things like that, where where he was a libertarian for six months before he yeah. stopped being one. Um, does that anything, have anything to do with him getting into power? I don't remember Lenin was a politician. Right? Yes. Yeah. He, no. So what he was able to recognise is that, that that was a popular position. Yes. But popular for a reason, because it's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best thing he wrote. Have you ever tried to read Lenin? Yes. I don't... Uh, not much. Yeah. A bit, yes. I don't massively recommend it to anyone who hasn't. He's not a very good writer. <laughs> so, oh, really? I don't find him so. I find him quite a... I find him quite a tough writer. I find him... He's, he's very much... He's very much like Marx in the first half of Capital and not nearly enough like Marx in the second half of Capital. <laughs> if you know what I mean. You know. Yeah. There you go. People I like quote him sometimes. Yeah, I, I, he has... He has Lenin has libertarian moments, right, in his writing. Um, he has... There is there is a, a stream within Leninism which is worth, worth rescuing and worth appropriating. Um, there is also a very big stream within Leninism which is worth throwing in the bin and stamping yes. on. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Sorry to any tankies listening, but uh, fuck off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did think the left needs to be... Um, uh, so this is where I'm not an anarchist, mm-hmm. but I am a... I, I have a lot of sympathy with libertarian socialism, but I'm not quite an anarchist. Yeah, no, I think yeah. That I shouldn't be afraid of using the state for certain. Yes, um, yeah. And that we're going to need. No, I, 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 I'm broadly in the same position of, of where I find a lot of, lot of anarchists very persuasive on a lot of things, but I'm not quite convinced that Any we can do it. Any situation where the social conditions and the strength of the movement are strong enough to have a successful anarchist revolution would also be conditions wherein the left should be looking to take and use state power in that same moment. I mean, it depends how you look at it, because the problem with this is that different strands of the left use the word state in different ways. Yes. Right? Some people would argue that the network of syndicates and trade unions and things that arose in Catalonia in the 30s was a state. Yes. Just a very decentralised democratic yes. one. Yes. An anarchist would say that it isn't. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's just many different definitions of the term state. Um, and, yeah, you're right. They're, they're useful in different contexts. I think we don't. We Marxists would say that it's it's nonsense to say abolish the state without abolishing before you abolish capitalism because the state is whatever institution any class uses to exert its class influence over another class. Yeah. Right. It's it, it literally the same. Abolishing the state is literally the same thing as abolishing a class-based society. Whereas the anarchists would say it's a it's a it's a it's a particular kind of institution where it has a monopoly over the over the legal use of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Which is which actually so, comes from. You know, uh, a sort of very. Uh, I think that's, that's a sort of Max Weber. Yeah. Point. I think this is a lot of the issues with anarchists and Marxists having yeah. problems talking to each other about the state. Really, just comes from Talk, different ideas about talking what past each other. Means. And 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 yeah. and my point would be, I I don't. I think we need to learn not to be afraid of having words that mean different things in different contexts. Yeah, Embrace a little yeah, postmodernism. You can. Yeah. The postmodernism is a chalice, which contains a drink. In which a little, a moderate amount is definitely worth having. Too much may be poisonous. Be careful. Well, it's not to sip too deeply. Postmodernism is a, um, <laughs> is a, a, you could describe it as a form of scepticism, scepticism about modernism. Yes. David Hume said something very similar to what you just said, but he used the metaphor of coleslaw. I hate coleslaw. Which is that, yeah, he said, he said it, <laughs> well, fair enough. But he said that scepticism is like coleslaw. Lovely. You don't want it. You wouldn't eat a whole meal just coleslaw. I wouldn't eat any. But yes, I take your point. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. And and I think that's the thing with uh, again a lot of a lot of Marxist leftists 
will look at postmodernism and go, ah, horrifying, you know, yeah, undercutting sort of rationalism, undercutting uh, talking about sort of, um, you know, Marxist Marxism is a sort of holistic way of viewing the world and postmodernism sort of doesn't like those and undercuts them. And, and you can set up this opposition between the two, which I think is valid as far as it goes, but it's also unhelpful um, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. You know, you I think it would be, for example, very good for some more Marxists to sort of draw on sort of Sicodian ideas about um, yeah. about about uh, punitive, uh, you know, punitive justice and all this kind there's of thing. A, there's a balance to be struck when it comes to yeah. political organizing and political theorizing. Yeah, because you could you can totally just scupper any discussion by going, well, what are words? What do words mean? Yeah, yeah, what no, is the state. What totally. is capitalism? Totally. <laughs> I, don't think, I think asking what capitalism is is, is worthwhile doing. Um, yeah. Uh, when you've got your theorist hat but not on, not necessarily every time someone says it. Yes, <laughs> as, as, but when you're when you're doing your activist hat, uh, when you've got your activist hat on, your yeah. organising hat on, maybe you leave that for for, for another time. Judith Butler, yes, said, uh, making use of a category that can be called into yes. question. Yes, yes, absolutely. Made to account for what it excludes. That was the other half of that sentence. Yeah, yeah. But she's not sure if she's a postmodernist anymore. Yeah, right. Uh, I, watched, I was watching the interview with her the other day. She's like, I'm not sure she's if a post I'm not sure if I'm a postmodernist anymore. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I count anymore because <laughs> the definitions changed. I'm a full blown reactionary. The now. definitions changed so much, which is sort of the point of postmodernism in the first place. So she she reads what she says, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, we can't keep defining all of our ideas based on how close or dissimilar they are to modernism. No, come up with a new word at some point. But there's <laughs> there's keep adding posts. Yeah. But there's a very there's a very good um, rationale to postmodernism. There's something that the Dale Martin said, who is a postmodern Marxist, gay, Christian, biblical scholar. So obviously, as a as a scholar of ancient ancient religion, uh, one of my favorites, and um, mm-hmm. and he talks a lot. Of, he talks about um, postmodernism um, as being important, but also sort of in the way that it allows us to sort of um, look at pre-modern cultures, because obviously he's an ancient historian, so so he he look you know he thinks it's important to look at pre-modern cultures and see what from those have we lost that we might want to recover, and at the same time we look at modern culture and we look, what from this do we like and we would like to keep, and what what actually would we rather get rid of? So I think you can you can you more. can take the rea- the rea- the rejection of the modern <laughs> too far and become a sort of anarcho-primitivist. Um, hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm annoying all the di- I'm annoying everyone today. Uh, the, all the anprints are signing <laughs> off. Um, and again, I, Here are all the ideologies I don't. Like. Yeah, I, number one. <laughs> but I think I think the thing with anarcho-primitivism is it's again almost every tendency of socialism has something to offer. I think, but um, yeah, yeah, but you don't yeah. want to take anything. You don't want to take things so far that you reject all of modern culture modern developments mm. i think there are some things worth keeping um i think it's a very common thing that people can be someone can be right uh, how do i put this someone can be right about something in a way that that closes them off and makes them stop answering questions mm. and stops them being right about something else mm-hmm. whereas someone can be wrong about something in a way which sort of um it opens it opens them up to a horizon of, of meaning that that can that can lead them to other things which are true that they wouldn't have got to if they weren't wrong about this thing. Yeah, I mean, right. being wrong yeah. about things and sort of learning from those mistakes is sort of how we progress all of human knowledge, right? You know, it's integral to the scientific method, but it's also integral to sort of philosophy. Mm. Um, yeah, like, like arguably the the kind of uh, the kind of radical contingency. Which we see in nature as part of the scientific eye, where we say that that 
that you have to have empirical tests you can't just work out how the universe because it, it could be one way or it could be another way is something which which wasn't present in the same way that it is in in modern the, the modern scientific eye as it it wasn't present in the same way in uh, ancient natural mm. philosophy um and arguably it comes from or at least partly it was opened up to in western thought by the radical um freedom of god in Christ in catholicism yep. right the idea that god could make the world one way or he could make it another way opens up the space for for radical contingency in the structure of reality which is something that modern science yeah started. no no definitely um yeah uh, sort of the 13th and and also the 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 way the 13th century um thinkers of the 13th century like aquinas and people like that are very they're very aristotelian in the way they think uh, not all of them obviously some of them are very augustinian but there's a sort of aristotelian movement in the 13th century and then in the 14th century you get this really interesting sort of it's almost postmodern before there's a modern you know it's sort of mm-hmm. it's sort of this sort of more skeptical tradition questioning things it's very interesting learn about medieval philosophy people it's more interesting than you'd think yeah uh yeah See, you can you can kind of read some element as uh, 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 they um, <laughs> developed into a position of by late modernism. I kind of oh god, it's such a wanker when I say. <laughs> can I swear on this podcast? Well, I say <laughs> if we have so far, so um, carry on as we mean to. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, the, a hegemony of instrumental rationality, as Adorno put it, mm. um, where it, postmodernism is, is is an attempt to open up enough space to allow other ideas in from wherever they're coming from yeah so it's, ne- it's not necessarily about itself it's about trying to open up it, trying to be skeptical about the hegemonic late modernism in such a way as to open up the space for more diverse ideas yeah. to come in. absolutely and i think not necessarily to just be nihilistic about meaning yeah 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 no, nothing which isn't about. which which isn't really a postmodernist sort of thing i, I mean mm-hmm. a lot of postmodernists didn't even call themselves postmodernists and hate the term so yeah it was derrida didn't like it either or yeah, I mean, especially when we're talking about philosophical postmodernism, but yeah. not about like artistic or well, musical. Quite, you know, basically, postmodernism is anything which came after modernism. And in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, sort of, of be in the zeitgeist. A lot of ways, and then people ask, "What is postmodernism?" And often, what people do is they just try and guess what everything that came after modernism has in mm. common, when they don't necessarily really. You have should that much. people who are interested in, in this kind of stuff should look check out the. Uh, uh, the channel it used to be called Cuck Philosophy as a bit of a joke, but then the joke oh, yeah. joke got a bit old, and it, it's now called something else. But I'll, I'll I'll link it in the in the show notes, and you should check out. I think it's her yeah, you should check out some of that stuff. Great channel, yeah, fantastic, fantastic stuff. Yeah. Um, really like 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 proper philosophical theory stuff, but c- c- totally watchable yeah, and, yeah. and very clear explanation. Really well written for someone like me yeah. who's like I'm I don't have a training in the humanity mm-hmm. or philosophy or anything but it makes stuff clear to me yeah I mean, i'm not a philosopher i mean i i i, I have I'm, I'm a historian so i was supposed to have a training in the humanities more broadly but but i'm not a philosopher and mm. i find it very you know, really good stuff i'll link that definitely but yeah anyway that's what we think about the pandemic yep <laughs> um so how do you think this pandemic's gonna play out well here's what i think about postmodern yeah <laughs> postmodern pandemic that's another good title yeah. for the episode. Oh yeah, it's too, it's too many yeah, good that's ones. Good. It's too many good ones. Um, but yeah, it just reminds me of when um, as one of my housemates just once sent me a message. I think they posted it in a group chat, um, which was something along the lines of, "We were in an unrelated discussion," and they said, "Could someone just explain the Israel-Palestine situation?" <laughs> <laughs> <So> it's, like, <laughs> it's like that's like 
a, a joke thing for the most complicated thing in the world. I had, I had, <laughs> and the most impossible thing to simply explain. Yeah. I had a similar, similar thing. I was sat in, sat in a pub. This was a couple of years ago, right when that was allowed. I was sat in a pub with, <sighs> with Harley, who was a mutual friend of ours. Shout out. If you're listening, she won't be. Um, Woo! But, um, I was, and, and, and we'd had a few. Uh, you know, I was probably three or four pints in. Um, this is about when I used to drink. And, um, and she said, I don't really understand sort of Islam. <laughs> and, like, is it, you know, what is it with. And so I had to give this sort of potty history of Islam <laughs> in about. What's up with the, the Islam? Yeah. What's, you know, the, 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 the Yeah, those ones. No, no, you know, not obviously not in a horrible way. He's a very nice person, but it was just she never really. Oh, yeah, never yeah, really yeah. learnt about it at school. Didn't really, didn't really get it. So I had to give. As, as so, I, I'd, I'd not long done my, uh, you know, as a, as a sort of, I, I work on um, religion in the ancient world, and I, I had done a, a year or two previously to that conversation. I'd done a, I'd done a, a special subject on, on, on early Islam, and it's obviously something I'm interested in more broadly. So I gave a sort of potted history of Islam in about half an hour, uh, over a, over my fourth or fifth pint of cider. Um, so I'm sure that was illuminating in some way. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't know. I learned a bit about Islam uh, like four or five years ago, just because, uh, and, I, and I stopped in about 2016 because the only reason I was learning about it was so that I could sort of hold my own in discussions with right wingers who hate Islam, mm. and I basically know what I talk about, well, what I'm talking about. And then with Brexit, they've just stopped talking about Islam. Oh, it will come back now, though, won't it? So you'll well, be not entirely. It's absolutely still there. Probably yeah. Islamophobia overall is worse now than it was. Yes. Yeah. But it doesn't occupy the main... It's not the main thing that they talk about all the time. No. No. But yeah, it might, might come now back now. talk about Europe. Might come back now. Because, I mean, if you look at the immigration figures, you'll, 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 you'll see that, that as EU migration has tailed off since 2016, non-EU migration has risen by about the same amount. So actual total migration has remained roughly steady. Um, and obviously non-EU migration is from countries where people tend to be not white. Hmm. So yeah. they're going to be... So all these people who are sort of... So if it wasn't, it would be really terrible. Yeah. Because migration's part of what's keeping the British economy going. Yeah. But yeah, all these people who sort of voted to leave the EU because they don't like... They don't like foreigners for a rude awakening, I think. Because the, the amount of number of foreigners isn't going to go down. And now... The visibility. Yeah, of now the, the, the sort of immigrants are more likely to be not white, which you would assume... I'm making a little bit of an assumption. But you would assume that people who are racist against... Polish people probably even more racist against I don't know people from the Arab world or wherever it is you know China India etc. So that's going to be fun. So yeah, maybe Islam will come back as a talking point. You'll 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 get the use of that research again. <laughs> well, I'll have to do more of it because I never got. Oh, well, I'll send you some books. Um, yeah, I have this huge. I've been building up this. Well, I do know. I'd, like from what I learned, it's actually quite an interesting religion. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Almost anything is fascinating if you look at it long enough and from the right totally angle, right. I find. But yeah, no, it is. It's, it's interesting how it emerges. Maybe I'll do a podcast on that one day. Who knows? But yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, ne I never got past sort of. I I know very little about Christianity, and I know next to nothing about Islam. Mm -hmm. um, so I therefore know a lot more about Christianity than I do about Islam. Yeah. Um, and my understanding of Islam is is still based on this skeleton of. Oh, it's it's a bit like Christianity, but with these changes. I think that's much more like Judaism. Well, that's that's a very oversimplified way of looking. It's at much it. more like Judaism than Christianity in in, in a lot right. of ways. I I, think, I I hold to the somewhat fringe belief within sort of academic circles, but not entirely marginal sort of minority position. I would say, as far as I'm aware, but 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 a substantial and growing number of people, I think, think this way, think that 
um, earliest Islam was much more Jewish than the Islam that we have now, and that later, because we don't have any sources from the earliest period of Islam that were written at the time by Muslims. We only have a few sources from Christians sort of looking in, and then we have writings by later Muslim historians sort of looking back. And But there are a lot of hints. For example, even in the Quran, it says that the, the, the in sort of the earlier parts of the Quran, um, and this is corroborated by, by later accounts that um, uh, before... Which, is, which will be at the end, because it's in reverse. It's not in reverse chronological order. No, it's actually in length order, so the chapters are arranged by order of length, oh, right, okay. uh, with the exception of the first one, which is sort of an introductory. They're called surahs. And the surahs are arranged longest or shortest, with the exception of the first one, which is a sort of introduction. Um, so there's actually an entire school of Islamic sort of theology slash jurisprudence, I suppose, Kalam, they call it, um, where you there's an entire sort of sub, sub, sub-discipline of like working out which bits of the Quran were revealed to Muhammad in which order, because the later mm. ones supersede the mm. earlier ones. In because obviously, if Muhammad says something and then changes his mind, or obviously they don't think it's Muhammad; they think it's God. Um, God himself. Yeah, but if God says something, if God changes his mind, then you better go with the thing he said second, basically. Uh, so there's this right. sort of yeah, that that kind of thing going on. But anyway, my understanding is that a lot of them are uh, are are specific to the context in which the revelation happens. Extreme. But you can't put the context in because that's not part of a revelation, so it's not the Quran. Like the Quran is just the revelations themselves. Yes, although the, the, right. the, the Hadith are also very important. Hadith are traditions about the right, Prophet yeah, that passed down through oral tradition. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm part of the sort of group that thinks that... So as I was saying, in, 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 the, sort of, in the Quran, you have this sort of... Um, basically, Muslims, before they pray to Mecca, they pray towards Jerusalem. Um, and then it gets changed to Mecca later on. Um, but I, I, and there are lots of sort of hints like this that sort of, sort of point towards very earliest kind of Islam as being very Jewish. There are lots of Jews in Medina, Yathrib, which becomes Medina. Lots of Jewish Arab tribes living there. And, um, according to biographies of Muhammad, um, before he started experiencing his revelations, he met a Jewish sort of teacher on a travel, because uh, he was a merchant. Uh, one of his sort of trips, he, um, I think. Well, this is why he's working for his uncle, I think. But he, he met, he met this sort of Jewish, sort of sage, I guess, figure who sort of taught him about Judaism. So it starts. So yeah. Anyway, I've gone off on a massive tangent. I might cut quite a bit of this, mm. but um, we've gone off on a tangent whilst talking about how we go off on yeah. tangents, right? <laughs> this time wasn't even a tangent. Off. No, it. it's just a generic. So, so this is its own self-perpetuating tangent. But yeah, uh, Islam was very. I think certainly its earliest period. It's much more in common with Judaism and Christianity. Of course, all three have a lot in common, but 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 yeah, I would see I would see Judaism, I would see Islam rather as being a kind of Arab reinterpretation of Judaism, with some contact from Christianity. Of course, I mean they, they believe in, um, they they sort of acknowledge Jesus as a prophet and they believe he's the son of God. Hmm. Um, and the and, birth, uh, so. Yeah, um, they don't believe he died. They don't believe he was crucified either. They believe that the crucifixion was quite sort of um, was a was a fake and actually he was taken up to heaven before he was crucified which is also a, a belief which was held by a lot of early Christians uh, called uh, Decetic Christians who didn't believe that Christ could actually die anyway um, this is all stuff that uh, I researched for my PhD but it's not particularly relevant to our current discussion yeah. that's what we reckon about the Islam that is why aren't you ever doing any jokes about Islam etc etc Stuart leave it 
Not yeah. ones like that, <laughs> Stu. Not ones we have to know anything. <laughs> when we said make jokes about Islam, we meant make fun of their hats. <laughs> Should we leave it there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. it's been two and a half hours. I'm going to need to cut this down a little bit, I think. Um, yeah, well... That was a good one. It's why we should be more regular, because yeah. it's always a long one after I, 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 I definitely, But it was Christmas. Yeah, it was, it was worth having a break, I think. I think I needed it, but yeah, definitely in the new year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, before we do our official sign-off, we'd like to make a small, small request. If you've enjoyed this episode, or any of our other episodes, please do share them. Give us a, give us a sub on, uh, on SoundCloud or, or Anchor or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Um, share them on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, you know, we we haven't we haven't got as many listeners as we did before we sort of went away for our big break. Um, and that's understandable. We were away for a while, but we'd like to build things back up again. So uh, <laughs> so we don't just feel like we're talking into the ether. So I know there are a number of you out there, and you're all very much, very much welcome, and we're very grateful for your for your attention. But please do, if you like it, share it around with your friends, with your enemies. With your comrades, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, spread the word because we think it's good, and we put a lot of time into it. <laughs> it takes ages to edit these bloody things, especially if I do it properly. Um, even if I do like a fairly light edit job, like I have in the last couple, because I've been a bit down and I haven't had the energy. It still takes like an hour, even to do a light edit job. To do a full edit job, it takes like three or four. So give it, give it a listen, give it a share. Thanks. Just begging now, really. But, yeah. Yeah. Please. please please do do that <laughs> I always think that because in social media you like other thing yeah right there's so many different platforms have likes yeah. whenever I was like like this it's always like 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 me yeah. please like you know, me it's, exact, it's, it's like, exactly that I am <laughs> an anxious and insecure person and I feed off of other people's <laughs> approval and you know give me give me your approval give it give it to me now or whatever you like. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're not the boss of you. We don't have bosses. That's that's the whole point, right? Um, <laughs> you, dear listeners, have been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Be excellent to one another, and a happy new year. Viva happy new la year. revolution! Au revoir.